So maybe you're more of an optimist inherently than I am, or maybe you're right and I'm wrong. But I, 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 I don't feel like people are going to walk away, you know, skipping and, and hugging. No, yeah. And I, I have definitely been accused of being a serial optimist. Uh. <laughs> God love you, man. I, I, I wish I could be wired that way. That's probably a better way to live. Hey, it's me, Rasan. I don't know, man. Huge hole in my, you know, yeah. <laughs> understanding. My fellow Americans. <laughs> I'll believe you. As long as you're, whatever you're doing doesn't hurt anyone else, I don't care. Different perspective of what an interesting topic is than I would assume. This is Balance Exchange. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Balance Exchange. Today, you're here with Papa Bear and... Cronus, and uh, this episode we're going to talk about finance and capitalism, and we also have two guests. So, what do you guys introduce yourself first? Either or. All right, I'll go. Uh, I'm going to be uh, Double Tank. Uh, been trading uh, for about 20, 21 years. Usually do about 800 trades a year. Uh, so, my uh, I'm just an active trader. Been in the industry for about three or four years. Um, because I was in the Marine Corps for 20 years, uh, but I just transitioned away from being an FA and working with FAs uh, to being a manager. Uh, just recently got promoted, so that's where my expertise comes from. And just real quick, FA is a financial advisor? Yes. Gotcha, all right. P. And yeah, I'm, uh, I'm P. I come from the other side of the world, so I actually spent 20 years as an institutional trader, sales trader, uh, and really expert on the way that the, the markets work from the equities, options, and futures perspective. Uh, so really coming at it from the way that big banks, hedge funds, institutions transact, uh, and have taken that and, and kind of made that my, my career thus far. I've got 20 years, crazy enough, uh, in that world. And that is, that is my professional training, unfortunately. I only have that in my life. I don't have the basic or the basis of, of military life behind me as well. It's simply... Uh, Wall Street goon in my life. <laughs> Wall Street goon. That's a that's a good one. We'll get into obviously the the markets and stuff like that. But first, we have a tradition. What's everybody drinking? We'll start with uh, Papa Bear. What do you what do you got? What are you drinking? Okay, right this minute. So I just finished my drive and I didn't finish it. So I'm still drinking my like energy drink from driving 45 minutes to get to my house. Um, it was my like mother and heart um, birthday not too long ago. So we talked most of the way for the drive home, so I didn't really drink much of it, so I, I ended up with a whole bunch of this, but I have uh, some Sam Adams, um, like, cherry lager that I'll probably, I threw one in the freezer because I came home with them, um, so I'll probably have that here in a little bit. All right. Uh, Devil Tank, you drinking anything? Nope, I ain't drinking anything. Do you drink at oh. all? No. All right. It's all good. <laughs> but I was drinking a Coke a minute ago. Right. <laughs> I don't have anything with me. All right, P. What do you what do you got going on? I know it's going to be something I, impressive. I am drinking my my favorite beer on God's green earth. It's the Einger Oktoberfest. It's a seasonal beer. You can only get uh, around from pretty much August through around now. It starts drying up, uh, and it is my absolute favorite. I'm not going to say it's the best because that's subjective, but it is my favorite, and I drink it like it's got the antidote in it this time of year. <laughs> You said you said it's an Oktoberfest made by who? Einger. It's a German brewery. A y i n g e r. You can probably get it out there. Uh, they they should be pretty broadly, but it's a German brewery. Nice. All right, and I guess uh, the next thing is, uh, what are you reading, Papa Bear? Uh, 
I mean, it's unfair, but you didn't share what you're drinking. Oh, that's right. Sorry. I'm drinking, uh, oh, what is this? It's, uh, water. LaCroix with like the, some berry LaCroix added with water. It's just basically water, you know, it's still, still yeah. sober. Still sober October. Yeah. Half, halfway Sorry. there to losing my brain again. <laughs> Uh, okay, so reading. Honestly, like the last few days, I haven't been reading because my audiobook time has been wisdom time. Like I have been 100% trying to like understand how the platform works and having conversations with people, um, understanding it. Like for one, a lot of us are providing that initial app feedback too. So even that that counter thing, right? So it's like, hey, it says there's 147 people listening, but I know that's not right. So can can at least the person hosting the talk have access to that total number and like who's a current listener. So I can maybe say, Hey, uh, you want to join in? Go ahead. I, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, you can kind of drive the conversation a little better. So providing some of that kind of feedback. The, Is it still beta? No. So, uh, Tuesday was their public release day. So it's been in beta for about a month and Tuesday was public release day is a madhouse. And we technically, were asked to like be a part of beta and like test it out over the last month. And honestly, like, I think we, after we both talked, I was like, I'm not sure. It feels like it might be like some kind of phishing scam. Like they're trying to get us on something, trying to get us to sign up for something. I was like, I don't know. But then when the app actually released and it installed on my phone, I was like, Oh crap, maybe I should actually check out what this thing's about. And it immediately, I immediately recognized like this might be that thing we were looking for to bring in guests that we maybe didn't plan for. Um, I already through one of the groups I joined into and talked with, like, he's like, Hey, just join this group that we have and put out that you need somebody. And cause remember we were talking about trying to find a sanitation guy, yeah. like yeah, we would find one through there, like put it out that that's what we're looking for. And that kind of a network would bring somebody on the show through this. We just need to get it hooked up. So you should specify though, a non mob affiliated sanitation guy <laughs> saying it's, it's important. A non what? A non mob affiliated sanitation guy. I don't know. That's that's a different economy. I wouldn't I wouldn't discount it completely. Yeah. It's been around for a long time, Jack. Yep. So not that sanitation goon. Yeah. You know what's funny? I was going through the B the BTI emails and Wisdom actually messaged us twice and I ignored it. I told you we get these things all the time. And I totally ignored yeah. it. I should have like said something. Whatever. I'll I'll, I'll learn from <clears> you, Papa Bear. Nah, I'll work on it. So the the book I am reading is still the Star Wars one from last time. I haven't finished it because I kind of got sucked into trying to. Make something of this new app. All right. Either of you guys reading anything currently? I'm reading Diplomacy by Henry Kissinger. Awesome. Uh, I'm I'm going with the classic. Uh, it's a lesson I'm trying to learn for life in terms of just being a better diplomat and uh, learning how to better align what I'm trying to get versus what I need to give. Uh, and I figured why not learn from somebody who did it for a very long time. So it's sitting right here. It's a big-ass book, uh, and I feel like I'll be probably reading it in, in drips and drabs for a long time. But that, that's the current one on, in, in the queue. Nice, nice. Like, defining someone as a diplomat is something that hasn't been true and honest for a long time. Like, like where we might have, um, you know, diplomatic relations or work on diplomacy, but no one themselves has really identified themselves as their whole entire sole role in like the international realm, it seems like, in, in my opinion, in a very long time. It's pretty cool. It sounds like a really good book. I might have to check that one out. That's super interesting because like, it, it, well, maybe this is a tangent, Chronos, so maybe I won't ask this, but. You can't go on. So, 
So I mean, what do you what do you think that truly means, right? For somebody to really and truly be a, a, a diplomat in in purpose and in function, what do you think that? Means? Uh, so again, like uh, not reading the book and understanding like that level of detail on it, um, that it's your sole purpose is to, you know accomplish a compromise that accomplishes basically like when the two people leave that uh that situation where we we go we're going to try to come to an agreement between and i I think of it from a nation state point of view right so when these two diplomats go and they're trying to come to an agreement between on a particular topic for the countries instead of what we find most people think is the is the good deal where both people walk away pissed off about the deal instead both people walk away happy about the deal that's what i think of as true diplomacy where no one walks away from our agreement more frustrated than they were when they came to it so that we then are just festering and causing a problem that we then have to solve later or someone else needs to solve later. That's the way I look at it. That's interesting because, and maybe, maybe my philosophy on this is flawed because I'm looking at a successful diplomatic relation as close to what you're seeing, but really more both sides feel equally fucked or equally unhappy, but equally. And I think that's the thing. Like, I, I don't personally think that for what I'm doing and where I'm trying to go with this skill set that I'm trying to build, people are going to walk away happy, equally happy at least. But I do think they can walk away feeling like they equally gained what they wanted and give, gave what they had to in order to achieve a goal, a, a trade, uh, a deal, an agreement, whatever that yeah. may be. So may- maybe you're more of an optimist inherently than I am, or maybe you're right and I'm wrong. But I, 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 I don't feel like people are going to walk away, you know, skipping and, and hugging. No, yeah, and I, I have definitely been accused of being a serial optimist. Uh. <laughs> God love you, man. I, I, I wish I could be wired that way. That's probably a better way to live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rose-colored glasses, you know, show the world pretty nicely. <laughs> All right. And uh, I am reading Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. It was recommended by Papa Bear a while ago. Yeah. And I'm almost done with it. I got like maybe 23 minutes left. So um, it's a fantastic book about the filibuster and how it like just broke, <laughs> you know, the Congress in general, especially the Senate. It just, just broke all, all sorts of like getting anything passed. And I didn't know... It was used so much against uh, President Obama. I was like, God damn. They used it like, I think it was like over 100 times on the, for like one president. I was like, damn, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's a great book. Yeah, I like, so I was actually, start. I started a talk today on my drive and then I lost signal and it cut out before I got to this particular part of it. But talking about democracy and how democracy is not actually the goal. And we use the word democracy wrong most of the time when we're talking about modern liberal governments or whatever. Yeah. But um, that... There is still tyranny within an honest and and an overwhelming democracy, which is the tyranny of the majority, right? So if 51% is the majority, they have the ability to also still be a tyranny. Even though it's a bunch of people, if they consider themselves a majority and they have a position on it, they can hold the entire rest of that society hostage just by being a majority. That's why there has to be something else there to balance that out. Yeah, but now what we have is like, you know, the minority and the super majority that you need like you have minority power which is weird where the, basically the, the the filibuster broke it broke the current system because you need like three like three-fourths of votes right to like get basically anything passed and it's like you can't it's supposed to just be a, a majority you know it shouldn't have to be like a 
you know, a supermajority. And, like, having this minority rule is, like, very, very odd when you think about democracy. So, yeah, definitely, you know, the 51% um, possibility of tyranny is there. But, I mean, we haven't really gotten there. And, like, having this tool being used so many times as, like, a, as like a hammer to, like, not get anything passed, I think is it needs to be changed. And this book has given perfect examples of why it needs to change. And now it's getting to the point of, like, how it can change. So, yeah. It's a, it's a good book on government. All right. I think we, did we miss one? Someone else? Uh, what are you reading? Uh, Devil Tank. You said you're not reading anything, right? No, I'm. All my time that I, uh, my hour to, to work and the hour back home is uh, spent on podcast. I'd like to get some good books uh, to to read on audio um, while I make my drive, but right now I just consume a lot of uh, different. Uh, podcast and uh information that way there's news yeah what uh, what podcast are you listening to primarily uh like joe rogan's podcast and uh blacker than black times infinity <laughs> they're my what's that they're my uh my thursday morning thursday evening uh drive i like to uh be able to listen to the whole thing, especially when I'm at work. But this work's been crazy lately, especially getting some new hires in. That I will I will say that commute time is what I miss the most about the pre-COVID world because <laughs> I I have I, I tend to be a creature of habit when it comes to certain things, and I have like a morning news podcast kind of routine that I went through every day that I really and truly grew to enjoy, yeah. and. Losing that because my commute now was from upstairs to downstairs. I, I actually miss it. Like I truly, I didn't think I ever would, but I, I really, really, truly do. You got to wake up early and like put the headphones in, do like some light cardio and just listen. That's probably a better idea. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's like part of how I do it. And I think there's still just not enough time. And I usually end up just sitting at the dining room table, drinking a cup of coffee and listening to something. So it's, yeah. you can, if that's the joy, right? If it's the listening, not the driving, I would assume that was the joy. You can probably still make that happen, man. My my last job, my last home and job pre prior to where I live, many days a week I would take a ferry to work, which was like the most luxurious thing that's ever happened to me professionally, was being able to take a ferry to work. So there were many mornings where I'd be on the ferry listening to you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it may be, going over or across the bay. And I, I distinctly remember being like, this is not going to be forever because this is too good. <laughs> that was when you're living in Alameda, right? So you can just take the ferry, mm-hmm. like, super, you probably walk to a ferry. <laughs> uh, not from where I live, but it was a short drive and it was incredible. Because yeah. pre-sunrise, ferry ride, it was awesome. Nice, nice. Oh, real quick, Devil Tank does, he listens to our podcast, but he also does the timestamps. So thank you very much for doing that. Cause oh, that's you. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And now I think starting probably next week, I'm going to start chopping them up into like little clips. Now that I have time to like edit the video and the audio at the same time, it only takes 20 extra minutes to like a half an hour. So it's not too much time to get it all out in one night. Yeah, I've been wanting to uh, recommend that to you because, like, especially for like me for uh, YouTube. I mean, you find half the subjects you want to listen about, 
but just by doing searches or it just comes up on its own because of the uh, stuff that people are looking at, listening to or looking up. So when you, if you label those clips by what you're actually talking about, you're probably going to get a lot more viewers, a lot more people checking out your podcast because that subject will come up, even though they would never have your podcast wouldn't have come up as it is, especially with some of the names that you guys uh, <laughs> name your podcast. But if you label them of what the subject is actually about, I bet you you're going to get a lot more hits, yeah, at least on the, YouTube. Yeah, I mean, that's the next thing now because, on you know, I have Thursday and Fridays are free. So I can just, you know, keep the – as soon as I see you do the timestamps, I can just take that and put go into Premiere and just do a workflow of just, you know, making clips. And it shouldn't – it should be pretty easy of just cutting them out because you already have the timestamps. So, you know, that will be in the, the hopefully near future. All right. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast. Um, talk about some financial and – um, so financial matters and capitalism sort of as a whole. Um, so I want to get both of your thoughts on what, what do you think is like the overall health of the U.S. financial system? We'll start with uh, Double Tank. Well, if you're going to ask me, I think it's one of the strongest uh, economies in the world. Uh, I think the health of our uh, economy right now, I think we're still doing pretty good. Uh, there is a major concern with labor um, everybody across all industries are uh, hurting. Like even us, we're we're hurting. I had the greatest job in the world, and I and I don't understand why we're hurting for uh, for labor. But nobody's looking for jobs. And it's at first I thought it was just our industry, but it seems like nobody is looking for jobs anywhere across all industries. Um, I've looked at um, read some articles about why people are hypothesizing that it's happening. And it does make sense that people will just kind of left their job and are looking for different careers, especially if, if your job was affected directly by COVID and things shutting down, um, you're going to, you're not going to want to come back to that industry and things are going to start um, just kind of folding. It's going to change. So I think we're in the middle of a change where you're going to have some, some companies uh, just start, basically devouring the ones that just didn't make it. But on the same subject, I'm pretty sure we're going to get into um, here in a minute. But I think this the great thing about our economy is that labor uh, costs, but wages are, gonna, are going up. Whether or not you see it or anybody sees it or wants to acknowledge it, everybody is starting to get paid a whole lot more. I know all the new hires right now that we're doing with, we're dealing with are getting paid a whole lot more than the people who got hired maybe a year or two ago, which is kind of forcing people to seek out new jobs because the only way that you can get a raise, like a real raise, is by switching jobs. You're in an industry, uh, Kronos, where I have I have tons of friends that are coders or in the tech world, and the only way that they get raises is to switch jobs. They, they go to another company, especially here in um, – Utah, we have the Silicon Slopes. We have a whole bunch of tech companies here. People just constantly just move jobs, and then they get thirty, forty thousand dollar raises. Yeah, I was I was in that cycle for a long, well, not a long, way, well, yeah, for kind of a long time for like ten years, until um, t- I found a company was a contracting company. And so, depending on where I went, my my base salary was the same, but if I went other places like Iraq, 
um, I got paid a whole bunch more money. So it, it, I stayed there for kind of as long as I could. And then it kind of work kind of petered out and I left. But, you know, now, yeah, I'm like kind of usually in the tech field. People just hop. You're right. They hop from job to job because it's super easy, especially if you have a certain skill set to like get another job in a, in a, a pretty sizable raise. But where I'm at now, I just have like the perfect work, work life balance. And I, I do get incremental raises um, every year and I get sizable bonuses. So and not not everybody gets those in, in this field. So that's why I stuck around for so long. Like I'm at 11 years now, which is weird. And I'm one of the few people that you'll ever hear say this, but I think that there is a point in time where you just make too much money. And <laughs> there's no real point of getting more. To me, it's just gratuitous. Like my, I just got promoted and I got my raise and I just kind of looked at my wife and I just kind of feel a little gratuitous. It's just like, eh, there's a certain point in time where you just don't need any extra money. Well, we'll get into that because I've changed my mind on that exact subject of like, I used to think, well, why can't you just make as much as you want? Now I'm just like, now I see the other, I understand like how most people are getting paid that much money and usually it's kind of gross. So, especially when you get to CEO pay. Um, P, I will ask you the same question. Uh, what do you think the current state of our financial system is? So I'm happy you asked it that way because I, I feel like I need to answer it by, by separating the market from the economy, yeah. right? I feel like the market and the economy are very different animals right now. And I've always looked at the economy as what you and I and Double Tank and Papa Bear feel versus the market is often what just happens around our money, right? Whether that be your pension, your 401k, any investments you make, or your employer stock or whatever that may be, right? So in terms of the, the economy, I'd agree with Double Tank. I think our big, we, we have major concerns and major worries about people going to work, people staying at work, people are at, people, young people especially, you know, where are they, how are they deploying their efforts and their energies as potential employees? And then there's also this big gap and this big, huge question mark about older potential employee, employed people, employed or workers, and where are they? Because they essentially have vanished from the market. And a lot of the underemployment we're seeing is very much focused on older folks. And that's concerning, right? Yeah. Older folks are often more skilled, certainly often more experienced. And that's not universally true, but that is a trend that you see. And they are underemployed right now. And a lot of that is, from what we can tell from a, a macro and data perspective, by choice, right? So that's, that's one concern. And that is, again, the, the economy. In terms of the market, I think the market is, is in a, a churn right now and is in a cycle right now where it is eating itself and it is doing a-okay. Right, I think the U.S. market is is in a place where it is able to self-sustain in a big way. We just weathered a major storm with a, a pretty big potential Chinese-based shock to the market that the market shrugged off pretty easily. It was it was like the Fury Wilder fight this weekend, where or where you, you saw massive haymakers being thrown, and the U.S. economy took a couple hits and staggered for a day or two, and then found its footing and kept it moving. Right, so I think that's. That's a big thing, and I think that is, it's, it doesn't mean it's invincible, it doesn't mean it's infallible, it doesn't mean that it is uh, not going to go anywhere, but I think that it is in a, a position where it, it's kind of found its footing, and I feel like it is a stronger position than, than most people would think. Uh, 
I think we're, we're this winter is going to be a big one, right? Just seeing how our market and the rest of the world starts dealing with these supply chain problems yeah. that, in my opinion, are only going to be exacerbated this winter, right? I mean, I, I, I talked to, and I, I'm a big believer in taking whatever kind of anecdotal local color you can get and thinking about it, but I talked to a longshoreman this weekend who works at the biggest port on the East Coast, and he was telling me he hasn't missed a beat. But when I say, do you talk to your brethren on the West Coast? He's like, yeah, they, they're all fucked up, right? Port of LA, Port of Oakland, Port of Long Beach, they're in a bad way. But the East Coast guys aren't in the same position, right? So I think this winter is going to be a critical one to see if we can weather the storm with the supply chain issues that are impacting the auto business, the tech business, the food business. You know, pretty much any business that I can think of, they are having challenges so i think it's okay now but the next six months are going to be critical to watch glad you said that uh papa bear you have any thoughts on what each of these gentlemen said on the current state of uh the economy and the markets so one of the like the points i had a question but it was kind of directly addressed which is i mean i've heard a couple of things recently and it's funny because even you know small groups of people uh, different kinds of communities you might not think about are aware and are like making decisions based on these shortfalls. So um, like a friend of mine in the Lego community, his wife says to him like, Hey, if you need to get stuff for Christmas, we need to order it now because due to shortfalls in shipping and everything else, like we may not even see that stuff by Christmas time. So go ahead and get that stuff ordered in place now. So it gets here hopefully sometime in mid to late November, right? Already that aware of just production and shipping shortfalls, just literally not having enough people to make that stuff move fast enough. Uh, somebody at work mentioned that they like raised the price for shipping for a U.S. Postal Service and then ex told everybody to expect even more delays, yeah. even though they raised the price. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. But I'll talk about it a second. Go ahead. Yeah. So like I, I my first real question was going to be like, how big of an impact on it do you think COVID had? Right. Like if we're saying there are these shortfalls, especially in like labor type jobs. And we're telling people, hey, you can't go be around people. And we know we're telling people to stay at home. How, how well will that respond once everything kind of stabilizes and people are like told to go back to work? Do they, are they going to go back to those kind of jobs? That was my first thought, I guess. I actually think that people are, uh, are trying to find different ways to not be affected like this again. So they are trying to find different skills. And it's something I've been saying forever. I mean, one of my biggest arguments against some of these social programs um, is if you don't like what you're doing, I mean, to be honest, I'm a Marine, uh, was in the Marine, for, Marine Corps for 20 years as a tanker. All right. So how much skills, what skills do you think I have for the outside world? It's like almost zero. Nothing really translates. And I tell all these Marines, I tell all these people, I tell everybody who's ever been part of the military, it's like if you think that you're just going to get out and things are going to be given to you. You're crazy. Yeah. You have to start setting yourself up ahead of time. You have to think about, okay, what do I want to do? Where do I want to be and how do I need to get there? You have to have a little bit of backwards planning. And I think that some of these people may not like where they were in life. They might not like that everything, that their, their life was drastically changed because of this. And they went and seeked new skills. And that's what we are supposed to do. I mean, if you don't like where you are, and it's just my personal opinion, if you don't like where you are in life, what do you need to do to change it? What are the steps you need to make? What are the skills you need to obtain? 
Yeah, so depending, this is kind of funny that you say that because you you literally came from an MOS that is obsolete now in the Marine Corps. Like, you got out, like, just in time. Yeah. <laughs> like, a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, they got rid yeah, of all the tanks. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, I think that I'm still cool. a little hurt, hurt about it. Yeah, well. My, uh, my <laughs> command and staff, like, the guy who runs the command and staff class that I'm doing is a lieutenant colonel who was a tanker also. So he he he's very, uh, you know, it's funny because we'll, we're talking through, we've been talking for six weeks, so this is a six-week mark, and we started World War II yesterday, right? And so he's like, this is the, the one moment we really get to talk about tanks. After this, it's really not that much to talk about. <laughs> After this, that's it. Well, I mean, unfortunately, it's just, it's not, they're not things that are really too effective anymore on, like, the modern battlefield, so... It just kind of sucks, and people have to like. I know, sorry, man. It's just they, they have to transition to like a, a different platform, you know. So I'd, I'd argue that's not necessarily true if we do talk about land war, right? But mm. the Marine Corps specifically, what the commandant's trying to do is just kind of reshift our focus back towards the singular, unique role of doing that actual. Um, littoral region right so going from sea to shore and and accomplishing that objective which no one else does and tanks don't help with that and you know huge artillery cannons that require massive trucks to move don't help with that so we need lighter stuff that is designed specifically for our role otherwise we're just like the the midweight lightweight uh, land force and that's not really what we want to be it's in the name it's in the name (laughs) but you'd be surprised how many marines when they go to boot camp doesn't know that marines have to do with water like I knew a bunch of people in boot camp, a bunch of dark brown marines. Yeah, I knew you were gonna go there. That couldn't swim for shit, and I'm like, why, why can't you swim? And they're just like, I never, I never learned how to swim. I'm like, what the fuck? That like, you didn't know you joined the Marine Corps? And he's like, I didn't know we had to go in the water. I'm like, bro, it's in the fucking name. Like, mar yeah. literally means water in Spanish. I think is it water or sea or something like that in Spanish? It's like, come on, man. <laughs> and to be fair, like there are plenty of not dark brown marines who can't freaking swim here so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I am a swim instructor like and have done plenty of other swim stuff too and, and, like it's not just that it, plenty of people join with absolutely no idea that they're gonna need to know how to swim so do sailors though people join the freaking navy and have no ability to swim so i mean you're like you're gonna be on a ship what are you gonna do that's even more egregious like, <laughs> that's like joining the oh, i can't say it i was gonna make a messed up joke i'm not gonna do it i'm gonna be this chair classy me. This Sam Adams cherry wheat is freaking amazing, by the way. Yeah? It's delicious. I think I've had that one. It's a delicious beer. It's all good. All right, going back to, uh, like, labor issues. Yeah, I think that there is, before the pandemic started, so, um, you know, before, you know, 2020, we already had, like, there's charts that you can see. I wish I would have downloaded it so I could show it to you. But, like, if you look at the salary versus the production value of workers, there was a huge gap between like how much we produced as 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 laborers, but how much we got like most people got paid. Like salaries stayed pretty much flat. Meanwhile, production went way up. And I think that uh, for most of the workers that decided to leave the workforce and either find something new or just leave altogether, is that they saw that they were getting put in uh, additional danger with you know the pandemic, and seeing that their employers didn't really seem to care about their well being. Or, you know, the fact that they had families and that they had other things that they needed to take care of, but they just, they didn't care. I've seen so many stories of people who were just, they wanted them to come in when they didn't really, they really didn't need to come into the office. They forced them to come in and there was no, um, they didn't really care about uh, people that had kids. You know, the kids can't go to school. Like if, if your kids can't go to school, 
or some sort of daycare and you work, like, what are you supposed to do in that situation? I think a lot of people saw that the the employer uh, makes way more money off of you than you are getting paid. And if they can, they'll treat you kind of like garbage. And people were just, they were fed up with that. It's like, you can't ask somebody to, first of all, keep the same level of pay and add in an additional layer of danger with the pandemic. Yeah. You know? Would I think I found a chart that shows pretty much what you're talking about. Would you want me to show that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So let's see here. Uh, well dogs are barking in the background too. Let me. <laughs> it's good times. Yeah, that's this is the exact one. The hourly compensation yeah. just went flat after like, well, relatively flat after 2000, and then productivity this shows is, up. This is showing basically from 1973 is where you first see that divergence where it, the productivity continues to follow a pretty steady trajectory. I mean, that looks like a pretty solid, normal productivity line. Yeah. But right here, yeah, it definitely stops keeping up with it. And I mean, obviously, depending on like what field you happen to you choose to be in, I mean, you, yeah, you can't, especially if you're in tech. Yeah, we get paid a lot more than than most people. Um, but if you're in like any sort of like manual labor job or something like that, or you know, food service, like your your wages didn't really go up. I think the the national minimum wage is still like seven something, right? It, it, it's 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 a it's a joke, right? Yeah. Whenever I see charts like that, so I I as somebody who has looked at charts and looked at data and, and Double Tank is now in this world, too, where you're constantly looking at analyst projections, analyst reports, charts, data, and all that. Whenever I look at big, broad macro charts like that, I'm always like, okay, how, how big a data set is it truly looking at? Because if so, – so what was the cutoff there, like 1973? Is that right, Popper Bear-ish? It was like 76 or 78. It was closer to the 1980s. It was closer to the 19 – okay, so like if we think about and, – and again, I don't know I, – I obviously don't know anything about how that chart was built and what that chart was built upon. But if that chart is simply looking at things like um, manual labor or, or what some people call shittily, low-skilled jobs or unskilled labor, I had to stop doing okay, that. that would be that, – that's, a, that's a, a very offensive term in my mind because it's not true. But it's, if that's what that's looking at, okay, cool. But if that's looking at the entire of the U.S. economy and we're looking at 1980 and we're looking at wages versus productivity, that's going to include – the crazy Gordon Gecko era Wall Street boom. It's going to include the start of the tech boom. It's going to include so much that is going to logically dislocate wages versus productivity, right? Yeah. If you were working on an assembly line at Intel in nineteen in the early in the nineteen eighties, and I think Intel started right around then, right? And you were an assembly line worker, and you worked for this company that no one ever heard of, and suddenly is Intel or Apple. Guess what? You are you are patient zero of this sort of thing, right? So I, I, as much as I believe that there's a problem, charts like that are too big, right? They're, they're too broad. They're too big for me to take seriously. I'm always worried that like, okay, what are we talking about specifically, right? Like, if we talk about tech, like Cronus is a part of. If you if you were employee 100 at Cisco. And you made seventy-five grand in nineteen ninety-five, a lot of money in nineteen ninety-five standards. And you rode that wave through two thousand and twenty-one. 
there's no way your salary increased in line with, with Cisco's productivity. Yeah. Right. Your wealth may have because you've got stock and options and all these things that you've been able to stack for the 25, 30 years you've been doing. But your wages, your wages by that chart standard may not have. Right. If you were an employee on the on the line at any of the top the, the companies, right? If you were an employee on the line at Tesla ten years ago, or not even five years ago, your wages have not increased commensurate with Tesla's profit. Well, I think right. So, like, well, what that, are we saying? I mean, there therein lies a problem, though. Like, given those you know specific situations that you just mentioned, like if you have you know. A worker that is working at the job, you know, doing the same job, but the thing that they're producing it has so much more value than it used to have. Um, there's a prop to me now. There's a problem with compensation where you're adding in additional value to these companies, and they're continuing continuing to stack, you know, profits. And yeah, some of those some of the you know profits, you know, they, they can wrap back into the company, but you're still adding in so much more value than they're paying their workers. And this is and these are you know, quote unquote, skilled workers that are like that. Not mm -hmm. like if you talk about line workers, it's, it's even worse. Like if you're actually putting these things together, you're not getting paid hardly anything. And those, those wages not going up is becomes a serious issue. Shit, is that me? Not being not so I so I, I, I'm agreeing with you. But what I'm saying, the question I think we need to ask is how do we separate wages from wealth? Yeah, yeah. because if you if you are if you were a line worker at Tesla, and when you signed up, you knew that 10% of your salary, and for ease of math, let's say for 10% of your $50,000 salary was going to be given to you in Tesla stock. And you did not sell that Tesla stock. Over the last five, 10 years, that money has multiplied. But that wouldn't be captured here. And again, I'm not defending any of these big companies. Yeah. I'm just saying as it's, it's you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who looks a lot like my father, uh, says all the time, like, we need to teach people how to think, and we need to teach people how to ask questions. And when this comes, like, this sort of thing, this is the question, right? Like, is it wages? And is that all we're worried about? Or is it personal wealth and family wealth, right? Is it, is it how do we separate those things, right? Like, because not everybody, especially on the West Coast, on the East Coast, not everybody's wealth, not everybody's financial health is tied to their wage, right? If you work for one of these big companies, an S&P 500 company, uh, likely you have some component of your overall financial picture tied into your company's overall production, whether that be stock, options, or 401k. But that's only in certain kinds of jobs, though. That's, I think that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's one of the problems. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So just so we can know what we were saying, I'll read the the like note at the bottom, which does kind of clarify exactly what the chart was for, which I think then is pretty much what you expected. Uh, it says, so the data is for the average hourly compensation of production slash non-supervisory workers in the private sector, and then the net productivity of the total economy. So net productivity is the growth of output of goods and services minus depreciation per hour worked. So it is specifically saying like, but it's kind of an unfair comparison sort of where it's saying total market is the productivity amount, but then 
hourly compensation is only for production workers. Well, and it sounds like they're leaving out a whole portion of the economy of people like like tech workers wouldn't be involved in that. Like anybody that's on this podcast, we wouldn't be involved in that sort anywhere on that chart, right? Because they're saying non-supervisory roles, which I'm guessing are above, you know. Yeah. And the rates you get paid hourly. Yeah, and so right. those are whole, those people, salary. Yeah, they don't get any sort yeah. of wealth yeah. from their company. So. Yeah, you're not private sector. You don't qualify. You don't qualify. I don't qualify. Right? Yeah, and but it's still a lot of people. So I guess that that's the other caveat. Um, Double tank. Let's talk about. You mentioned something I wasn't even thinking about talking about, but um, having too much money, like too much compensation. So why, why don't you go into that a little bit? I mean, I mean, I do, I do think there is a point in time where you do just make too much money. Like, I think, I never used to think this until I've gotten in the situation I am in now, but like, even after we just got, we just got a raise, I just got my raise, um, my new position. And I was just, I mean, it's all fun money. It's like, it's nothing money. It's like. I mean, I just buy toys. I bought, uh, I can't even say how much I bought my just mountain bike because my wife's the next door. But uh, <laughs> you got your own money then. That's what that means. <laughs> get, get that yeah, I mean, we just have we just have stuff that uh, it just there's a point in time where you just don't need excess. And I think I'm at that point. I think I'm at that point where it's like, okay, I, I don't understand why I would need any more money. Or money just doesn't motivate you anymore. It's like, okay, if you're going to get $20,000, $30,000 raise, yeah, it's nice. But if I'm going to be miserable, if I'm going to be just absolutely just hating my life, I don't need it. I don't need it. I can just stop working altogether if I wanted to. But I want to do something that I like doing, that I enjoy doing. I enjoy coming into work. So to me, you get to a point where you're doing things for uh, the love of the game, if you will instead of uh, money. But there is a point where I don't understand why anybody would need any more than a certain threshold. I know my threshold's a whole lot different than uh, San Diego, uh, 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 the Bay Area money. But for me, it's just, there's a certain point where you just don't need any more. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think eventually there's going to have to be a conversation with probably the U.S. government on specifically like CEO pay because this kind of goes into that realm when they're making, um, you know, so much more than the average worker. And yes, I totally know that CEOs, obviously, they make the company and, you know, obviously they they have certain um, risks that they have that their employees do not have. However... Um, the, the employer, the employee is basically like the frame of your house and you can talk about CEO pay all you want, how much risk they, they have and how much money they should be getting paid. But if you have no workers, you don't have anything, you know what I mean? And so when you have a disparity of like 351 times the pay of an average worker being a CEO, but there's a huge disparity there. And it's like, why aren't, why can't you, you know, take some of that money and, not have such a, a large gap because I think it was prior to like 1978 or something like that. It was, um, it was like it was the average was like 20 times the worker pay, but now it's 351 times worker pay. And having that just that 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 spread there 
to me it doesn't make any any real sense and it, and it just reeks of you know employee exploitation because you could be paying these people more money but you're not and at the same time you know you see these you know some of these companies and other you know wealthy people talking about raising the minimum wage but it's like you don't really need to waste, raise the minimum wage wage per se if you just t- took a reasonable tax cut or, or sorry reasonable pay cut and just took that money and distributed it amongst your employees so they can have an actual non-poverty wage but nobody's really talking about that the, the fact that there is a concept of a celebrity CEO yeah. is crazy, right? Like there's a couple people in the world that I understand why people are interested in them because maybe they're a genius or maybe they have a cult of personality around them that makes them truly special. But there are others, you know, leaders of certain banks who are fantastic business people. But the fact that they are a almost household name or a household name in certain uh, socioeconomic classes is crazy, right? Like Jamie Dimon. That's exactly who I was thinking, right? Like I, I think he's an, a fascinating character, but I've never worked at Chase. I've never worked at J.P. Morgan. There's no reason I should know what he looks like. If he walked by me on the street, I'd be like, oh, shit, that's Jamie Dimon. That's absurd. He's a banker. He's a senior banker. He's a successful banker. He's a really good banker. But why is he a celebrity? It's like the celebrity chef thing. Like, why do we know them for their their personality and their charisma and not just for their work? And like, I'm supporting what you're saying, Kronos, because I think that there is a disconnect with a lot of these things, right? There are people who are builders, right? Like, I think Elon Musk is an incredible engineer and a, a, a very interesting fascinatingly bright person. I don't know if he is the CEO that everyone thinks he is, but I don't know. I know I don't know. And that's exactly what I'm saying is I don't know. And I think that that's where we start to see these huge problems, right? Where, you know, are you, are you working with the company? Are you investing in a company? Are you trading the stock of the company because you're waiting on the next tweet from this person? Or do you truly believe that the business that they're building has legs over the next two quarters, three quarters, 10 quarters, right? And there's a difference there, right? And it's, it, it often comes back to a lot of the reasons and a lot of the things that motivate a lot of things in, in current American society is you're playing the trend, you're playing the sentiment, right? And the sentiment around Elon or the sentiment around Jamie Dimon or the sentiment around, you know, the CEO. I mean, can you, does, does anyone here know the CEO of McDonald's or Walmart right now? Top of your head, CEO of Walmart? No, we don't, right? Walmart's big as shit, right? None of us know who the CEO of Walmart is off the top of our head, right? We don't, right? I know the CEO of Bank of America because I used to work there once upon a time. But most people don't. Where, where, hey, uh, Papa Bear, where's your, where's your checking account at? Uh, USAA. Who runs USAA? Uh, I do not know. You shouldn't. You shouldn't know that. Because it shouldn't matter to you who runs USAA. Because he shouldn't be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. He shouldn't be on the front page of your local newspaper. He shouldn't be. Right? right? And therefore, to Cronus's point, he also shouldn't be making 380 times more than the person at the call center in San Antonio who you call when you have a question on your USAA account. Right? It shouldn't happen. Yeah. Right. And some of them, too. So you're talking about ones where... You say 
if we have a rule where the CEO is taking certain risks that you know the the employees aren't right? because they're uh, making an investment, they're establishing this thing, they took the risk, they're doing these things with the money, and could potentially lose everything. So are so are the employees. They're taking risks that those CEOs aren't taking. They're on a line producing a thing that could put their fingers at risk, could put their hands at risk. Like, which one could we honestly say is the bigger risk? Like. Definitely the worker because, I mean, they're, they're not going to have a golden parachute, right? All, all these CEOs that have, you know, quote-unquote risk, the vast majority of them have a golden parachute. In case something goes wrong, they can they can pull the pull the string and they're fine. And they get a payout and it's guaranteed. Yeah, so they've I, moved on. They have the financial coverage and they have all their fingers. Yeah. What were you going to say? Double tech? I, say, I, I agree with you. However, I mean, do you, do you guys watch CNBC or uh, follow CNBC at all? Not really. Sure. I mean, if you did, um, you would hear, like, it's almost, I mean, I don't want to say a lot, but I mean, at least somewhat uh, often, you'll hear about some company poached another company's executive, or uh, some other company got the CEO of another company to come over to them. It, they're just constantly uh, poaching each other's executives, people who were in charge of certain departments for like Google, for Apple, for Facebook. And in order to bring them over, you have to entice them. You have to make them want to leave the other job. That's the reason why all these CEOs are getting paid uber amounts of money. I guarantee you, especially for public companies, I guarantee you nobody wants to pay any of these executives the amount of money that they're paying them. All companies, no matter what, and we're gonna talk about this, they want to pay you as little as humanly possible. Yeah. It's just that if you want the talent, if you want the ability to hold on to these talented people, you have to pay them. You have to spoil them in every possible way to keep them there. Otherwise, they're going to leave and go into the next big thing and make even more money at this other place. It's just the way that our economy works, and I don't know of a, a way to fix it but when I see it in a microcosm, just like we just talked about this before, where you have all these tech guys just jumping to new jobs, making $130,000, $160,000. A friend of mine has, he just hired, he hired a kid two years ago out of college, out of college to be a dev one uh, web developer. He has two years of experience just left to another company uh, to make $130,000 as a team lead. He has two years of experience out of college. I mean, you just, if you're going to get, if somebody's willing to pay you this much to go over there, you're going to go. And well, it's just the way things are. Yeah, but I'll be honest, though, this kind of goes what to, to what P was saying with like the celebrity CEOs. I think the vast majority of these CEOs aren't actually adding in value to their companies, especially when they, all these executives are leaving. <laughs> I think the fact they have a celebrity status, that when they leave the company, um, somebody that's interested in them, if they have a celebrity status, then people automatically start investing in the company they're going to. And I've seen that trend before. Like, we've had, the co I work for the largest tech company, one of the largest in the world. And we've had, you know, CEOs come and go over the years. And, like, some of them, they, they didn't really add any real value to the company at all. Like, when they changed, when they came in, they didn't really change anything really. Something minor might change, but it's nothing really big. But for some reason, like, you know, the stock will go up or down depending on, you know, what they what their perceived leadership is. But it's like from like the 
from a worker's perspective, it's like you're not really doing much. You're like all the changes come from like way further down the the the, the chain. Yeah, and, and way longer, right? So so Kronos is being very coy, but he works for Pornhub. <laughs> Pornhub as a company doesn't they, they take a lot of money and they, they give a lot of joy I mean they give a lot of other things uh, but no but seriously like companies companies who are, are, are truly doing things that are innovative that's one thing right but I, to, to exactly what you were saying Kronos I think there's something to be said for the market and the market's reactions things like executive departures, C-suite departures. Sometimes there's teams that leave one place and go to another, right? Yeah. When we're talking about investment and market moves, right, and I think this past year has been the greatest and most fascinating proof of concept of exactly what we're talking about here, of like what happens when the herd moves in one direction, right? And that herd in the case of AMC or GameStop or some of these other companies, is a bunch of retail investors who are moving in a pseudo-coordinated manner. That's one thing. The other herd, the big herd that's been around for much longer and is much bigger, are the institutional investors who will oftentimes re react to sentiment, right? You know, buy the news, sell the rumor, or, you know, there's, there's all these other things that people will say, like, you have to... When, when you look at the way the market moves, oftentimes the market is moving because of sentiment or because of, of news or because of headlines. And these moves may not be long-term. These moves may be shock reactions that'll move a stock 5%, 8%. And then you'll see you know, a, a, an immediate reaction or a reaction over the course of a couple of days. But that reaction, that, that exacerbated violent move that you'll see in some of these companies or in some of these stocks, oftentimes is a reflection of sentiment, right? Like, oh, shit, the CEO died out of nowhere, or he left, or he's in a big trouble and is in all the headlines because he's a bad dude and he's getting arrested for being a scumbag, or because she was lying about the efficiency and efficacy of her blood drug. Like, wh whatever it may be, right? Like, but these things oftentimes are digested and reacted to so violently and so quickly before either they are fully understood, they are fully validated, or they are in fact proven true or not. Yeah. And there's, that's, that's a trade, right? That also goes back to, and, and Double Tank knows, there's a trade and there's an investment. It's not the same thing, right? If you're a trader, you fucking love this. You eat it up for, like, you, you can't wait, right? Please, please give me some headline, please. Tomorrow, Friday, in the U.S. markets, or let me look at my calendar, right? Tomorrow is expiration Friday, right? Options expire tomorrow. The market is dying for news, right? Options expire tomorrow. The market is especially volatile on expiration Friday. So anything that could potentially give a movement to a stock is going to be reacted to almost instantly and violently and maybe corrected and maybe proven wrong. But it's like people, this is, this is edge people live for. People literally like can't wait for this sort of thing to happen. It's great. I didn't if you're that. a trader. Yeah, I, I, I was not aware of that. That's, uh, that's fascinating. And it's one of the, what's that's one of the things being that it expires on a certain time. Like why would that be a specific reason to want to sell something or change something or to make a trade? Like why would the expiration of the options make a difference? 
Double think. Do you want to do you want to jump in here? I feel like I've been talking a lot. Otherwise, I can. I mean, if, uh, options expiration days where people have to either exercise or their options are going to expire worthless. So they want a bigger move. Huh? That's, that's, that should happen to me. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, they, they want a bigger move to either they're going to their stuff's going to go on the money or it's going to expire worthless. So the uh, options is usually where people are going to either unwind trades. Especially if they owe, like if they sell options, like me, I'm a big options seller. So, like, if I know I'm gonna freaking get hurt, then I either have to unwind the trade or I get prepared to buy a whole bunch of stock that I wasn't prepared to buy or uh, yeah. sell a whole bunch of stock that I have. And that's another thing too is like when things get exercised, you have to sell a whole bunch of stock that you didn't plan on selling. So you're gonna have a whole bunch of sells and a whole bunch of buys. So, so I'll, I'll add to that in a little bit of a different way, but just being very, very high level, when you buy or sell an option, any option that you look at has a date that it expires. Some of these dates are Friday of the next week. Some of the traditional monthly options are the third Friday of the month. Some of them are January in years, years and years in the future, right? And the price you pay for the option varies highly on the time between right now and the time that that option expires. But they're finite. All options that you will buy are finite. These are different from the options that Kronos may get from his employer. These are options that you would buy from the market, right? So when you buy an option, when you buy it, you literally see the date that it will expire when you purchase it. Again, traditionally, the U.S. options market options expire on the third Friday of the month. That's tomorrow for options that are October 2021 options. Your traditional monthly options expire tomorrow. So if you have an option that is struck at 10 and the stock is trading at 950 and it's a call, right? You are, you are waiting to see how close to 10 you're going to get by the end of the day. Because when that option expires, you either need to make a decision. Are you going to sell it or exercise it? And depending on what kind of option you bought, there are different actions you need to take financially risk based or maybe not at all and just let it expire worthless and walk away and take your hit. Right. But so so because of that, there tends to be a lot of uh, volatility around options expiration days, which are usually, again, the third Friday of the month and quarterly that's exacerbated. Right. Because you got futures expire. Something about triple widgets, right? You have futures expire and you have options expire. If you have index options expired too, but that's that's a different conversation. Yeah, I wish I would have. So yeah, I had my options. I had they were from my company, but they expired. I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't paying attention, and it was they expired like September of last year, and it didn't hit the point to where I bought in. Right, so it didn't hit like thirteen dollars and fifteen cents, and so I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with them? Like, I, you can't do anything. It's like, fine. Yeah, I, I can't sell away. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't hit the price. Yeah. But I was like, if I if I was aware of that, because it was like it was like four thousand four hundred shares, so it was like it was pretty significant. But if I would have like saw that, hey, September is like the cutoff, I should have just sold them way earlier. Like anytime it was around, like you know, over thirteen dollars, I should have just sold it. Just get out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, but yep. I was stupid. I learned from it though. <laughs> All right. Is there something a topic you want to bring up? Double. Oh, I'm sorry. Double tank. Papa Baron. Because I, I got a couple, but you haven't. Let's get you in here. 
Um, not right this second. I think that the question I have is probably a little bit longer into the conversation. Okay. I, I didn't have a whole lot because I'm honestly I'm in I'm in learn mode right now. Like, I started investing very late and did it very very like narrowly. Um, where I, I honestly even talking about futures and talking about options, like I have a very very <laughs> vague understanding of what those terms potentially even mean. So. That to me, I'm like, I'm kind of keeping up, but um, for me, it's a little bit different. So um, mostly in learn mode right now, to be honest. Well, it's an interesting time to like for the, the stock market in general, because especially with the, the whole meme stock thing, I think that awakened a lot of n- n- traditionally, you know, non-market people to like look into the market. Because like when you saw mm. that people could just like, mass like artificially inflate this stock and then get out and have a bunch of money but also pay your taxes um people saw that as like we could do this but you know most people they they would go their whole entire life without ever thinking about the stock market but last year was like a perfect or this last year slash this year it was kind of a perfect storm for people because like you know you're out of a job potentially um you might have some money left and you see that you know, if you're of a certain age, like if you're a gamer or, you know, watch entertainment, like you see these two companies getting, you know, what perceived to be as being screwed by a bunch of uh, short sellers. And it's like, well, why don't we just try to screw them and maybe get some money out of it? You know, and so you saw a bunch of people um, just artificially inflate both AMC and GameStop, GameStop and uh, some of them got a bunch of money. <clears throat> I mean, I still have like a couple of shares in, uh, in AMC and it's still, it's, it's still worth it. Because it's still worth way more than what I put into it, you know. Oh yeah, that's the reason why. I mean, I, we talked about the options. I gave you that trade. I uh, messaged you on my trade that I did with AMC. Yeah, that was just a unique. Is a unique uh, opportunity. Like the 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 volatility on AMC was so freaking high that I was making a thousand dollars a week on a week weekly option, like a. An uh, option that expires next week, I was making like $1,000 off of it. And all I had to do was do it by a week. So I bought like 100 shares of AMC and just kept selling uh, like a 60 call, a 50 call, a 55 call. And I sold the, uh, that 30 strike um, August expiration uh, call f- or put for $900. So I had to go all the way down to 30, which it did. Uh, I actually had to go to 20 before I would actually lose money, but that was a 30 strike. But it was just an opportunity. It was like where if you actually believe in AMC, if you actually believe in these companies as an investment, there were so many opportunities that you had just because of how volatile these stocks were. And it was all because of retail investors and just that market sentiment. Uh, I, I kept telling people that none of this makes actual sense. Like Tesla, Tesla to me, it's just so crazy for this company to be like the third largest company in the world, like bigger than all the other car manufacturers put together was absolutely ludicrous. It makes no actual sense. That's the reason why when people ask me if I wanted to invest in Tesla, it's like, no, it scares the shit out of me. I was like, there's no way I would do this because it doesn't make fundamental sense. I mean, the, the, the stock keeps going up because everybody keeps talking about it and wants to get part of the ride. Yeah, but the ride that people need to understand is like some people that got money out of it. It's like if you need to pay attention and pay your taxes. I think next year some people are going to be, be pr- probably really fucked. 
with taxes. So, uh, Kronos, I feel like you and I have had this exact conversation yeah. maybe more than once about like my 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 I wouldn't say my greatest fear because I don't give a shit because I'm not I'm not exposed to this, but I feel like there's going to be a class of young people who Uncle Sam is going to be beating down their door for the next several years because they did not realize that short-term capital gains is violent. And if you did not save the money that you made trading whatever you were trading, cryptocurrencies, meme stocks, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what it was because Uncle Sam will not forget about you. Yep. Right? They will, they will come for you for tax purposes one way or another. Right? I... <laughs> Anecdotally, I was at a I was at a casino this weekend for a bachelor party, and there was a very excited young man who made a pretty good amount of money at a, a table. He made, you know, five ten grand at the table, and went to cash out. And because he made so much money, he had to fill out a, a document. And as as a part of that document, he had to essentially disclose his information. And I was like, "Yo, bro, pay your taxes." Yeah. Because they're coming for you at the end of the year. I've heard other people who I know firsthand who have said they, they you know, won money on a lotto ticket and they went to collect it and they thought they won X amount of dollars and they got to the back office where the lotto guy was and he was like, actually, yeah. you didn't because you owe the state of New York X dollars. Thanks for coming out. We're keeping all of it. Like, it, it's going to catch you eventually, Right. The, the meme stock thing, the, the cryptocurrency, whatever it is, right? And it matters and it's, it's different because depending on, on, on how these trades were made, you know, people need to understand that you can't hide this cash forever. Uh, and if you really want to make that your life's work of hiding this money, then that's going to be a tough gig. Well, you need, right? a, lot, you need a lot more money to hide that money. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. yeah. it's going to be a tough gig. You don't really want to live that way. Yeah. Um, but I do think the, the meme stock and, and the, or that whole part of the, the market for the last two years now is proof positive that people, when they get together in mass and are organized, at least loosely, can impact the market. But I will also tell you from the other side, the institutional market saw that happen. They didn't see it coming. No one I know saw it coming. But they saw it happening, and they pivoted and adjusted to it at light speed. And they were alongside, and they were trading it, and market making it, and playing it within hours of the first big moves in any of these things. Right? Like, don't kid yourself. Like, you weren't. No one. No one stuck it to the man here. There was there was a lot of money made. There was a lot of money lost. But there was not. No no one tricked anyone here after the first couple of hours went by. Didn't happen. Yeah. This is exactly what I said the moment we started talking about this. Because I remember when Kronos was talking about this on uh Black and Black Times Infinity. I was like, don't be don't kid yourself. There are actual professional traders right now that are just making money hand over fist because of how volatile everything is. Yeah. It's like, yes, some retail investors, some would say t small time traders People that never traded in their life are making some money. Good for them. But I guarantee that professional traders are just making money hand over fist because of how just incredibly violently volatile the market is. And Agreed. like I was trying to stay away from it because all my trades get monitored. Everything I do gets kind of uh, 
I have to like watch what I actually do, especially if I'm uh, executing trades for other for clients. I, I some of my trades get uh, kinked or canceled if if I perform any trades for any clients in a certain uh, security. But I couldn't help myself. Once I, I mean, we stopped. We stopped uh, executing trades for AMC at my company. Um, we, we couldn't. We couldn't solicit it, which means I can't. I can't sell it. But if you call me and you want to trade it, then so be it. I'll do it for you. But I couldn't recommend it. I can't do anything with certain uh, securities. But I did for myself. <laughs> I was like, ooh, I, I got to get on in on this because there was money to be made. And so I completely agree. I mean, institutional traders, professional traders were making money hand over fist. I guarantee it. Yeah. It was like the people that were trying to get into it were, were playing like tic-tac-toe and the, you know, professional traders were playing like 3d chess on this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the tic-tac-toe made some money, but the other folks probably made millions <laughs> off of it. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. but wasn't the dialogue around it, like for those who were coordinating it and trying to get all the retail investment in there was like, like you said, like, let's try to beat these people who are trying to break this particular stock or take advantage of these companies. They're trying to say, Hey, join this movement to, to, like you said, stick it to the man. And like, let's, let's, let's make some money by messing with them. But if, but so you have to hide this fact that like, Oh no, 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 that didn't happen, but let's keep trying. Well, it's it sort of did, but it was like temporary, right? When they when they did like the short squeeze, because um, I know they they've temporarily like some of those folks lost like a lot of money, but I think it wasn't forever. Like, there's, if you have so much money to play with, like, yeah, you take some losses, but you can just re you can't you just take this some of the you could take some of the money that you had and just reinvest it back in GameStop and just ride the wave back up. Like, there's nothing to stop them from doing that. You know, what I mean, like, yeah, they took like a, a the short squeeze loss, but. Why wouldn't you just reinvest it and just like ride the wave right back up, you know? Because there's a thing called a wash rule. So if they did take a, a loss, like say that they sold, then they would get into something where they call the wash rule where you can't uh, invest in it again for 30 days. Oh, all right. Uh, what they could have done is just put more money into it to try to break even and ride that wave up. Yeah, and, and there, there's a bunch of ways that they could they could have expressed this, right? They, they There's no way... There's a couple of different types of entities that you're talking about here, right? You're, we, we have the institutional, the market makers, and we have the hedge funds, right? Hedge funds, like Marine, it's in the name. Hedge funds are not doing one thing, not single thread. They're not doing one thing at a time. If they, if, they are, if they are expecting this company to, to increase in value, because they are a long, let's say they are long biased on this position, they aren't going to be stupid enough to just say, hey, I'm buying this because I believe in it and I'll see you later. No, they're hedged because they're like, we're buying this and maybe we have some protection with, with options on the downside, or maybe we have some diversification within the space by buying other companies that are like them, right? So they're, they're not single threaded entities. And while they may take in a hit on AMC individually, on the stock, we don't know what they made in terms of their options positions or their futures positions or any other ways that they could have expressed and protected themselves from violent moves like this. Net, they probably took a hit, but that hit they took is probably nowhere near what is being reported by the various media entities because they don't know the whole picture and it's very difficult for people who aren't in that shop to know the whole picture, right? Yes, we lost $50 million on this position, but 
we had protection. So that $50 million hit really only cost us eight because we were properly hedged to protect ourselves from violent moves using options, futures, swaps, whatever entity or whatever, whatever instrument they're able to buy to protect it. The world, the, that, that world, the institutional investing world, the institutional trading world is, is, is not a simple thing, right? There are people who are doing different things at different times for the benefit of their employer, who is the asset manager that we're talking about at any point in time. All right. Um, what I found fascinating about last year um, was kind of like what I, at least I perceived as like the artificial in, inflation of the, of the stock market because of the various stimulus packages that came through with the, with the federal government. And I was, I was fascinated that, you know, in every single one of these stimulus packages, they had money set aside for, you know, large corporations and through like PPP loans, through institutions that weren't even really hit that hard through, um, from COVID. And it was just like, like, what is going on here? Um, and so I don't, I don't really understand how, first of all, the fact that it's legal for them to do that, to like give more money from the stimulus uh, money to corporations rather than the people. And then second of all, the fact that they're giving giving that to some of these companies that don't even pay that much in taxes, if any at all. Like, how is that even possible to, to, to extract money out of a system that you don't even pay into? Is that, is that just a normal thing for, <laughs> for financial markets? Like, I was unaware of that until last year. Uh, I, I could not agree with you more and could not understand it less. So <laughs> I, I am I am with you and I, I, I don't get it, right? There's one thing to be considered as a an employer and a systemic importance, uh, a systemically important company to the machine and all that. But I, I, I don't understand how you can be considered systemically important, too big to fail, whatever it may be, without contributing properly to taxes, employment, whatever it may be, right? And so I, I agree with you without qualification completely. Double Tank, you got any thoughts on that? Like the whole situation that happened? Well, I think, I mean, my own personal, again, my own personal opinion, I think the stimulus, uh, it, it's not really what's driving the economy or anything. I think it was a, a little bit of a life preserver. I think it was mostly getting pushed by, in my, again, in my own personal opinion, it was, it was a life preserver for the average person. And then because they did that, everybody else wants to get their hand and get their little money. And what can, what can we do? What can we get? And that's how the corporations got involved. But for the most part, the, the, Stimulus wasn't for the economy itself because the number one stimulus, the number one thing I think that artificially buoys the market as a whole and the economy as a whole is these low interest rates that we have right now. Yeah. To me, it's the the artificial uh, like cheap money. I mean, my my uh, house I just refinanced for two percent, two percent, two percent. I mean, the amount of money that you can afford. Or the amount of house that you can afford when your uh, interest rate is two percent is outrageous. If it just went up to four percent, the amount of house that I can buy would go down drastically, and that's for everybody. So if if you look at the housing market as a whole, 
once interest rates are going up, then people can't afford some of these prices for the houses. Then all housing goes down. Uh, people stop buying housing. And if you think about all the things that go into buying a new house. You buy a new house, you need to buy new furniture, you need to buy appliances, you need to buy, uh, do landscaping. There's all kinds of people who get paid and who make money off of buying houses. You need a new TV. Things get bought. That's how the economy goes, is people buying houses. That's the reason why when housing goes down, the entire economy goes down. And the moment that interest rates are going up, the amount of prices that people can afford are going to drastically go down. So right now, everybody's happy that they have a lot of equity in their home. And there's a lot of this, I would say, artificial equity. But I mean, eventually, housing prices are going to have to go down. They're going to have to because interest rates are going to have to go up unless they just keep getting artificially pushed and forced to these all-time lows. Well, this is like, there's two points. Um, Probably, hold on, unless there's something you want to say. Yeah, so I I think maybe one of the points you're going to make, I was kind of leaning in on what he said, which was, so the the idea that the stimulus package was meant for the average person, or that's what like the objective was, was like the public face of it, or maybe that was, you know, that's the goal. Hey, in order to do this thing we need to do, um, we're going to have to get all these other people on board because they own these people who make these votes, right? They're the people who are going to influence them to make the decisions based upon who their contributors are and who everything else is. So in order to get this decision passed, we have to then put this other portion into this stimulus package in order to get it to the average person. So, hey, in order for us to get anything to these people, we have to then set aside this huge chunk over here for the people who influence those who actually make the decisions. Uh, is that kind of what you were saying? That's what it felt like. That's what I kind of perceive some of that as is that in order to do this good thing, we really want to do, really need to do to help the average person who is being impacted by it. We have to get these people to make these decisions to vote a certain way. And the only way to get them to vote that way is to put something in this to then support the people who tell them to vote a certain way. That's what I personally believe. I think if you look at the actual stimulus package, if you look at how the money was actually distributed, I think only what 13% actually went to uh, the average person. Like yeah. If you took about how much money each person got, so if you went like 350 million people in the U.S. times how much the stimulus they got, it was like I think it was like three billion or like maybe 10 billion dollars out of like a 90 billion dollar thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I remember looking at it, the the hard numbers earlier when it actually happened, but it ended up coming being to being like thirteen percent. Yeah, I didn't get paid shit in any in any of the no. times, and <laughs> this is the problem that I had. I'm like, they need to stop means testing these sorts of things. Like, listen, if you want to, if you want to do something like giving 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 everybody money, then stop means testing it. That would actually help people, you know, because especially when they're going off of tax returns from like years ago. But it's like, if you lost yeah. your job, then your income is zero. But your tax returns two years yeah. ago, yeah, you made money. So that, this is why I can't stand when we talk about, you know, using social programs but having, like, these really weird means testing. For me, they should have just made it UBI and just gave it to everybody. And, yeah, I understand that some CEOs and millionaires might get it. But, you know, giving $1,000 to a millionaire is nothing. Giving $1,000 to somebody that, you know, is poor means a whole lot more. And the fact that, you know, the person that is poor – um, they're putting less of their tax because obviously they're paying less in taxes because they're poor, but they're getting they're extracting more out of the system than a CEO is because he's paying um, vastly more in taxes as far as dollar goes, dollar amounts go, not percentage wise. So he's actually getting less of his money back than the poor person is. 
Let me make one point real quick. So what you just said is a little bit wrong, though, because everybody who did their taxes in 2020, if you didn't make anything last year, you could have gotten the stimulus when you did your taxes. So when you did your taxes, there should have been something that said, did you get a stimulus last year? And you said, no, I didn't get a stimulus because I lost, uh, because I made so much money the year before. Then you would have gotten the money that you were supposed to get because you did you lost your job and you didn't qualify because of the tax return that you had before. So that should have been corrected with your 2020 taxes. So I mean, that's, that's with the fix there. That's a it's a fix, but I mean, like if, if at the time, like if you lost your job and you needed the money and everybody else is getting money, man, it's just like. I just I feel bad for those people that, that were in the situation where you know if you lost your job and yeah you, you have to wait until what April, until <laughs> like yeah. it's like man like imagine like not having any sort of income for that long, you know I, I, to me it's just it's incredibly cruel to, to people. That's why I don't. Like I, I, I also I, I want to add something on this point because it's something that's actually been bothering me as it relates to these sorts of conversations for a while, right? And so I, I agree with Double Tank that the, the and this is, a, this is a phrase that I heard as a young person on trading desks on Wall Street that I didn't really understand until I got older, but cheap money, the fact that there's so much cheap money around is really good for people who have the means to deploy it. But I'm, I'm, a product of New York City upbringing. My family never owned a home. And then I moved to the Bay Area where home ownership is very, very difficult. And I, I lived in the Midwest for a very long time where home ownership is less difficult, but still quite difficult. So I've never lived in places where the average Joe can buy a house. You have to be moderately successful to buy a house in any place I've lived. So cheap cash, low interest rates have not been as meaningful for me until I became of age and, and of the, the income level where I can actually get a mortgage and deploy it to buy a home. I, I am very well aware that there are many more people who cannot take advantage of these low rates. And because of that, I feel like the other stimulus packages that have been out there have actually truly been helpful because I feel like, yes, Home ownership and all that comes along with that, and I agree with you completely, Devil Tank. All that comes along with anyone buying a house, refinancing a house, getting a bigger house, whatever it may be, is really important. But I also feel like there's a huge swath of Americans who are not interested in buying a house or not capable of buying a house, but being able to have their basic income uh, uh, supplemented and, and augmented, and at least they know they have a bare minimum level, allows them to spend money in a way that supports and stimulates the economy more broadly, right? Whether that be their car note, they're spending money at their local grocery store, whatever it may be, but it keeps the machine churning, right? So even though they're not spending cash on the level of you buying a home, me buying a home, Kronos buying a vehicle, they are spending money on things that they could not have if they didn't have that extra, you know, eight, twelve hundred dollars a month. And I think that has value too. And I think that that value tends to be overlooked because the numbers are smaller, but it's a lot more folks like that than there are people taking advantage of lower interest rates so they can upgrade their home or move to a new location, right? So I, I just want to make sure that when we're having conversations like this, we don't discount consumer spending and all that's come along with that, whether that be saving or paying down debt 
or being current on debt and not having hits to their credit. And there's been a lot of that. And there's tons of data around how the health of the U.S. consumer has been augmented by these packages over the last 18 months to a point where everybody got it wrong. Everybody got it wrong. No one thought that the U.S. consumer would perform and behave as well as they have. But they have, broadly, because they've had this, this crutch of stimulus, deferred or child tax credit now, and all these other things, uh, maybe larger unemployment benefits. The real shock, and what I was saying earlier about how this winter is going to be clutch, is that shit is over. That ship has sailed. So with the exception of the, the tax credit that a lot of folks are getting every month, those extended benefits, those mortgage moratoriums, those rent alleviation packages, that's over. So this winter is going to be really telling, in my opinion, to see how the U.S. consumer does, how they survive, and how they continue to deploy their cash. Yeah, I think um, it's a couple of points. I, I, honestly, y'all know me. I'm a huge proponent of UBI, and I think that universal basic income. And I think last year really showed that it's a, it's a viable solution to a lot of Americans. Um, that's the, a version of UBI is what was deployed last year through various stimulus packages and this year that really kept this economy alive for like a lot of people. Um, and a, another point is when it comes to like lower interest rates, um, I, I think that most people don't really understand that when we have lower interest rates, I mean, it's good if you own a home and stuff like that and if you're like buying stuff. But if you have a savings account, like you're kind of fucked, you know, because that, that same interest rate is tied to your savings account. So if, if that goes lower and lower, then you're, you're getting less and less back on your savings account. Then how, how, do you, how can you be expected to save up enough money to buy a home? You know, when your interest rates on your savings account, which most people have um, as a means to get money, you know, to, to save money instead of investing, they, they have a savings account. So it, it makes it incredibly hard for people that don't have these means um, to just save up to, to get a home. And I think part of this, especially in the Bay Area, there was like this huge... You know, the tech money made a huge disparity um, with the economy. You know, that's why here in the Bay Area, you see, like, when it's talk about the K-shaped recovery, you know, you, you see it here. I mean, you have literal huge camps of homeless people that are here. And people want, might want to talk about, oh, it's mental health. Oh, it's drug addiction. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of that is definitely part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is that people are literally priced out of living here. And that's yeah. a huge issue. And if, if you can't, it, you can't, uh, you know, expect somebody to pay $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, and I'm not exaggerating at all, you know. And then if, if you expect, oh, we'll just move somewhere else. If you have no money, though, if you're already been priced out and you got deep in debt, you know, and you have no savings, you know, because you, you tried to live here outside of your means, you know, and, and you lost your job, like, you, you're kind of screwed. Like, you don't have enough money to, to move somewhere else. And... I think that there needs to be something to be done about having such a, a disruptive industry like tech. Like, there has to be a way to, like, help the rest of the economy out. Because, yeah, tech is doing great. And some other industries are doing great, too. But the other industries are doing incredibly poorly because so much more um, resources are going into, like, one direction. And it's, it's terrible. The, the crazy rates you mentioned are are staggering right like top of your head I refinanced. if times. you have let, let's <laughs> say you have you have good credit and you want to open a savings account at marcus 
which is a Goldman Sachs-backed bank, which has great rates, what do you think your savings rate, interest rate would be? Papa Bear, what do you think? Ballparks. Uh, like 1.2%. 1.2%. Kronos, what do you think? I'm going to say like half a percent. Probably half a percent. <laughs> Double tank, what do you think? 0.01%. 0.01%. The actual answer is, Kronos nailed it. It's half a percent. And that is, you have to be a hell of a good citizen, credit-wise, to get that rate. Half a percent. <laughs> yeah, see? Eternal optimist. <laughs> I mean, that's absurd. It's absurd. I mean, why bother? I was just actually thinking about the Goldman Sachs uh, CDs that I was I got people in just a couple of years ago versus what you can get right now. I mean, right now, the interest rates are just, I think maybe I do have like a half percent for like a two-year or one-year CD, maybe. But, I mean, on the same note, it's like, okay, Kronos, if you if you had a bunch of money right now and you wanted to invest it safely into something pretty like safe, say like uh, treasury bonds or like a CD or anything, you're not going to get any return. Yeah. You're going to make zero return. So where do you have to go? Where do you have to put your money? The market. <laughs> you have to put it in the market in order to get any type of return. That's another reason why. Or, I or, or a hard asset. asset. Or a hard asset, right? And I, and I, I hope. Which you, that which we you can't see do, people though. try. Yeah, but it's well, hard. <laughs> yeah, because you can't save enough money yeah. to get an asset, right? For like a lot of people. Like a part of me is like people should be stretching their like if they if they feel they're underemployed, if they feel that they are a dock worker that gets treated like shit and has to work through COVID, like maybe those people should be encouraged to go to culinary school and start a food truck. Or go learn a trade and become a plumber. Like that's a. I know this is uh, this is a tangent, and and I'm not sorry, but it's a tangent. But like maybe this is the time where people should be stretching those legs and being like, you know what? I don't want to do this forever. I do want to to explore other ways to make money, and those ways may include, you know, exploring other other trades that are perhaps either more satisfying or allow me a bit more control where I don't have to work for the mega corporation or the government entity that I currently sit under. So what do you think society, like us as a group or, you know, the government or however we want to frame it, like what do you think that we could do to encourage people to be able to pursue those kinds of things? Like, hey, look, what I'm doing right now isn't meeting my means, isn't meeting what I need, and I want to pursue something different how do we encourage that in a way that still continues to be productive where they do in the end continue to put back into the economy? Like go ahead and get that food truck started. Like actually get to the end goal. Encourage training in the trades, remove work, work to remove the stigma of like, look, man, there, there are guys I went to high school with who went to become sanitation workers in New York city and they've made a great living, right? They did not go to college. They didn't want to go to college. And you know what? To be honest, they probably shouldn't have gone to college. And they didn't. One kid went and beat his, his family business. They owned mortuaries. He became a mortician. He was making six figures before most of us were out of college, right? He learned a trade. And that trade was what his family did and what he ended up doing. But, like, removing that stigma from a society perspective that, 
You cannot be considered smart or educated if you didn't go to college. Removing that culturally, and that's not something the government is the government is empowered or entitled or should be doing, but that's on us. But the government could be certainly helping with a, I don't want to equate it to a GI Bill because a GI Bill is earned, but there are other things that people can be doing to encourage the trades uh, and people to enter the trades and get that sort of education. You know, go learn to be a mechanic, go learn to be a diesel mechanic, go learn to be an aviation mechanic and get help for the, from the government to do that uh, so that you aren't having to, to either put yourself massively into debt so that you could learn any of these skills um, or, or deal with the societal stigma of being a plumber because we fucking need plumbers. We yeah. need a lot of plumbers. And all the houses that are being bought in Utah and the Bay Area and the Midwest, they need plumbers. So, like, I can tell you, living where I live, getting a plumber has been a pain in the ass lately because <laughs> they don't have enough of them. So, yeah. like, that, that stigma should be removed and we should be encouraging people to go that route if that's where they are geared, right? If, if that's their, 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 that, their predisposition, then we shouldn't be shaming them for that. So, like two two things on it. One, I would I would assume that someone who's running a mortuary over the last couple of years probably did do pretty well. So that's good. Pretty well, pretty well. Jesus I'm Christ. guessing. <laughs> but uh, that's morbid, man. The second, yeah, is, is that a little dark for Mister Positive? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the the so like if we look at the the financial aid program that the federal government like backs these things like student loans, and the way they're designed to support. For those people to fill out this FAFSA form and go to college and like get these like really well backed and like really low rate loans, how many of those are like when you're going to your form and you're filling it out and you're selecting or filling in your college, are technical schools like a form that you fill out? Like, is that a thing that you can do? Because my experience with those forms is no, right? And but maybe I wasn't looking hard enough and I was applying for loans for college, not for technical school. So I honestly may just have overlooked it. Is that something anybody knows? Like, can we go to fill out these federal forms and get backed at least back to support where, you know, it's like going to be the lowest interest rate possible. And when, when these incentive things come around and like, I'm not paying student loans right now, then are those things counted in it too? So would they, people know and track it and say, that's a, because I, I feel like that's not the case. And even that kind of a conversation of, Hey, we need to talk about these in the same in the same realm starts to make the society say maybe we should be removing that stigma and, and you say like government's not responsible for how we feel about it but the rules we make and the laws we make and the way we tax things we tell people what our values as a society are and if we don't say that's important too by doing things then then we don't tell people to think that way yeah no i mean it's a good point i mean because look at you know the the situation that we're in right now i mean most people, you know, I think about it. When it, talk, when it comes to, like, going to college, like, going to college didn't used to be for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, it, it definitely wasn't pushed by the vast majority of society or by the... Because it's, it's being pushed by the government as well. It's, don't, so it's not only society, but it's the government that's pushing these things. Hey, you should go to college. This is how you make money. This is, you know, do this, 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 and that. But... Um, the effects of trying to get everybody to go to college has been, to me, disastrous. I mean, you've had all these people going into super deep debt. There's maybe, maybe two people that I know that went to college and they're doing what they actually got their degree in in life. Maybe two. 
but they yeah, have all this debt from that and it's and it's i don't know why people yeah and i'm not this. one of them yeah i don't, I don't know why people do this. like i never want to go to college because it, it didn't make sense to me at all um but everybody's pushed to do it and yeah i i'm totally with you there i mean go to a trade i mean I got two points if you want to uh, hear something yeah, real quick. Please. Um, for the college thing, I have two. I have one major thought about it because I have been hearing you talk about this for a long time. But my thought process is there's exceptions to the rule. There's certain people who just rise above and there are exceptions to the rule. But if you look at the rule, like during the uh, financial crisis, during um, 2000. Uh, uh, dot-com bubble, 80% of the people who lost their jobs were people that didn't weren't college-educated. If you look at the actual unemployment rate of people who were college-educated, it was in like the 5 or 6% versus like the 10, 11 to 15% for people who weren't college-educated. So that's the reason why people kind of push going to college. It's just that you have more of a chance. It's kind of like just throwing – uh, something up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Most of the stuff's going to stick. Yes, there are going to be people who fall, but again, that's just going to be, you don't know their personal uh, situation. You don't know their, their personal work ethic. Um, the other portion of it is the, like the debt portion that you talked about. I get really pissed off when I hear this stuff because you don't really have to go into that much debt. You're choosing to go into this much debt. If you want to go to a really expensive college, if you go to a community college, you're going to get the same exact, I want to say the same exact degree, but you're going to get a degree just, just like anybody else is going to get a degree. A lot of these employers just want to know that you have a degree, not that you've got a certain degree. People are paying for these big degrees for connections, for uh, uh, networking. Most of that money is basically a networking thing. It's so that you can go and and have an in, have a internship with some of these companies right out of college. That's the reason why you're spending this big money, but you don't have to. It's not something like you have to put yourself in the debt. You can get a Pell Grant and go to the local community college and get your degree. You don't have to put yourself in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. That's the reason why I do get kind of a, a little bit more worked up when people talk about all these college kids getting themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. It's like, well, don't go to that college. Oh, this is one other thing too, though, man. Is that the actual college graduation rate is actually not that high. So, I mean, people are doing these things that too, and it's like, I think the thick. I don't know what this this one is from. It might be from twenty nineteen, but the overall graduation rate was like sixty three percent. Like that's that's not very high. <laughs> like that that's a high dropout rate, and and that's. You know, nationwide. If you go by specific states, it's probably it's it's lower. Um, it's better than the national high. voting average. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but still, you don't you don't have to I mean, you, don't, you don't have to pay to vote anymore anyway. So no, I, I I I don't have enough data to to dispute or back up what Double Tank said, but I hear you right, and I think that it would be fascinating to look at. It. And I don't know if you guys have done a, an education podcast or, or an education topic on this podcast, yeah, but yeah. The, the, the separation between community college, state college, and the Ivy League is also massive, right? Massive in terms of the earnings that people who come out of those programs 
But that's that's They're mostly crew, because of connection. Right? And that, yeah. And that completely backs up Devil Tank's point, right? Like that there are I, I can't tell you how many hilarious, horrific, and depressing conversations I had when I was working at a global investment bank and I had to help recruit kids who came out of programs that I could have never gotten into when I was a kid. Right? Like it was it was depressing because I was like, I don't understand why you're here, but I understand why you're here. Right, because you 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 played lacrosse at this school, and and I get it, and I, I'm disgusted by it, but I get it. So I think there's there's whose dog is on? Go lay down. Go lay down. It's like right in my Go ear. Lay down. What the hell? <laughs> Sorry. It, it, Sorry. It's a problem, but it's 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 a systemic problem that's been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. The the, the disparity there is it's it's. I don't get it. And the, the thing that gets me is that most people that go to Ivy League schools, they, they come from money. And it's like when you get into like generational wealth, you know, that's a whole different issue, but it's it's still tied into this. You know, the, the fact that, you know, the vast majority, even of like the CEOs and people that are quote unquote self-made CEOs, they're like, they're not, they're not self-made. They came from money. Like I used to, I used to think that Jeff Bezos was a self-made guy. No, he, he got a $300,000 loan from his, from his parents to start his business. You know, same thing with like Elon Musk. He wasn't self-made. His dad uh, is, is from South Africa. He had a bunch of money in like a a gem mine and I think farmland. And you know, it's like when when you're when you're already starting, you know, your life ahead of everybody else. Like, yeah, it's super easy to make money when you start with a you know with a million dollars. It's like if you gave me a million dollars, you know, when I was younger, I, I could have made a lot of lot more money than that than what I'm making right now because I already started off like way ahead of everybody else. But we idolize these people, like like you were saying before, with these uh, like celebrity statuses, as, as if they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. No, like they they were born with a suit on, <laughs> and you know wingtips, so they, they they didn't even have boots. They had something way better than boots. Yeah, and I can't help but think too. You talk about the cost of those Ivy League colleges, and that like students shouldn't be taking on loan debt in the hundreds of thousands in order to attend schools like that, but. I would assume that the vast majority of those attending those universities aren't taking on any debt. Like you said, that yeah. their their attendance there is paid for by someone who has more than enough money to pay that little bit of hundreds of thousands of dollars for them to go to college. And then that's when that's why when they're done, they have the ability to then make that much more wealth too, because they now have that title, they have that connection, they have the the validity that or you know the ability to join into these groups who are making the kind of money who can send people to Harvard and not have it cost them anything. So it, yeah, it, I have to think that those two things, unfortunately, that the cost of college where it's like burdening people is probably that middle ground, right? It's the, yeah. I overreached a little and I went to like an expensive state school and like probably shouldn't have gone that far, but it seemed like a reasonable thing. And I maybe pushed it a little too far and got a, a you know, an arts degree or something. And like, right. I, I, I have a degree in, in, in philosophy from the university of Chicago. Like that's probably not where you should have spent your money, Yeah. but good on you. Right. Like that, that's, that's a tough call when you have those sort of, you, you have a degree in something that you may be passionate about, but you have very little chance of actually making a, a meaningful living with that degree. If you want to do that. But like Chrono said, maybe, maybe that's, there, there, we shouldn't completely write off the fact that maybe for some folks, and maybe these are the outliers, like college helps them learn how to learn or learn how to debate or learn how to question. And different people need college for different things. 
I'm sure different people need the military for certain things in their lives, right? They need people to sort them out and square them away so they can move away, move on with their lives. The individual has a lot of, 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 of flex here, right? And we shouldn't discount that and try to paint everybody with the same brush. I agree. I focus on like learning in my current job and just imagine if one of those lessons you got in your freshman year when you were first starting as a college student was actually about learning. Like, here's how people learn. Here's a studies. Here's like all of the research that's been done. These are strategies you need to employ as a student. These are things like if you want to think about lifelong learning and how learning affects our ability um, to maybe not get uh, dementia as we get older, because if you develop a uh, a lifestyle that says I'm going to constantly learn new things and you keep pushing and keep challenging your brain, it'll actually stay healthy, just like your body and your muscles. Like if you keep working it, like there's research that proves all this. And you know how many lessons and how many courses you can take at the average college on specifically like how people learn? Yeah. Very few, unless you go into an education yeah. degree. Like that's it. Double time, what were we gonna if you talk to any officer, why do you have to have a college degree in order to become an officer? That's probably not a question for me. Yeah. He's a warrant officer. Well, you're a warrant officer, so it's different. (laughs) The main reason why is a gate it's a gatekeeper type of deal. It's a it's a hurdle that you have to get over to prove not and I want to say just to prove, but to show that you can get through something difficult, that you can see something through to the end. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to quit uh, my college program. And when I was thinking about it, because I was thinking about what you guys were saying, I actually did. Like, I originally joined the Marine Corps 100% when I was 17 years old to go to college. I did. I took a couple college classes, and then I kind of kind of got away from it. I didn't really think about it until I was 10 years in. And I started thinking about, okay, I'm a tanker. What am I going to do when I get out? I have to start thinking about what I want to do when I get out in 10 years. And that's when I started get, uh, working on my degree uh, in finance. And then I just started taking more and more classes. And then I was taking five, six classes a semester to make sure that I got it done uh, within a reasonable amount of time that I can go ahead and start looking for jobs and doing things before I got out. There's just backwards planning that I had to do. And it was just one of those things where I wanted to quit so many times. But I think that a college degree is one of those like gatekeeper type of deals that just kind of shows that you can you can see something through to the end that you're not going to quit, that you're going to go and do something hard and see it through. So I think and talking about that 60, those 63% graduation rates, that's a, that's a, that's a point that there's some people that is either, there's two things, either college just isn't for them, which is fine. Or some people just you know what, this is too hard. I'd rather just make the quick money and go out and get uh, this quick job. Instead of working two jobs or working and going to college at the same time. Yeah, I think, Pete, you went to college, right? You graduated? Uh, I went to college. You didn't graduate, though? Did not graduate. So I'm not judging. I'm just, I was, I'm the only person that didn't go to college at all on this podcast. And, but it was by design. So I, I never, want, like, I knew in, like, high school, actually, way before that, like, elementary school, that I wasn't going to continue my education traditionally. And because just, school just didn't. It didn't work for me. It didn't make any sense. I was taking classes I didn't really care about. And I knew what I wanted to do since I was like 11. And it was computers. And you didn't really need a degree for that. So 
that that's why I kept it going. But yeah, I think I think that there's probably more people um, that probably don't really need to go to college like at all um, that go anyway. And I'm just like, yeah, you don't you don't really you don't need to. Um, but in certain fields, yeah, you do need to like hundred percent. Like, uh, like if you're a doctor, definitely go to college. You know what I mean? Or if you, <laughs> you want to be a, a lawyer, definitely go to college. Like, just, you know, but if, 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 if you're my doctor, doctor, please. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, uh, especially right now when you can learn so much on your own, but that's, that's another thing. Like it, it takes the right sort of mindset to learn on your own, to be an autodidact, um, and not, you know, take a traditional educational route. And I think that's probably where it's kind of a bridge too far with, a lot of people where they need that structure to to be able to learn um, to do things. So in that in that aspect, yeah, I I understand college, but I just to me personally, I just never got the appeal from from just for me. Well, I'll, I'll pivot this back to kind of the initial topics we were talking about here. Like I, I feel like for somebody like Papa Bear, who was very clear that his uh, his his entrance into the financial markets is pretty new and pretty young relatively there's never been a better time and i feel like i've said this verbatim to you Kronos. there's never been a better time to want to educate yourself on the way that the markets work the markets are fully incentivized to educate retail investors like you and me and any of us and there are more resources and more uh, factual, confirmable information that is not on Reddit, uh, that is from, you know, whether that the markets themselves, exchanges themselves, uh, you know, investment advisors who by law have to give you information because they have a fiduciary responsibility to you, or other sources that are explicitly geared to educating the retail investor, right? So, Pop Bear, this is something that you're truly interested in, especially as it relates to the options markets. There's tons of resources out there now that you can read, learn without having to spend a dime, right? Without having to put any of your capital at risk, you can learn the language, you can learn why they work or why you would use them, right? And, and I think that that's exciting, right? Like, like if you are that self-learner uh, that Kronos was just describing and you are interested in the financial markets and you are interested in the economy, this is the, better, the best time of all time, right? Because you can expose yourself to the regulated markets. And I'm talking equities, options, and futures. If you want to go into the crypto markets, that is your business. And there's more information out there than you could ever imagine, but it's harder to verify, right? So, you know, back to kind of one of my original points, like learning how to learn and learning how to validate what you're reading is not bullshit or that somebody's trying to sell you, you know, a bridge. Uh, learn it, it's there. It's, it's, it's more, more of it is there than has ever been existing in human history. It's also easier to just get into the markets right now. Like, you know, 20 years ago, oh, gosh. Like, it was damn near impossible for the average person. But now it's just like, you can do it on an app. Yeah. <laughs> you you can do it. It, it. I guarantee you any of the banks that you deal with, whether it be USA or otherwise, has a button you can click that says brokerage, right? Which will allow you to, and as a matter of fact, back in the day when I was working at one of the big investment banks, USAA was one of my clients their institutional trading desk created for me. And I know this because I almost got arrested on the USAA campus in San Antonio. I got pulled over by the angriest, very recently retired Marine Corps security guard who was furious with me for speeding on the USAA campus. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. Yeah, Marines are assholes, so. 
He, he was angry as shit because I was speeding because I was late to a meeting. And he was right. I was wrong. Yeah. USAA just recently removed it from being an internal function and gave it over to someone like more qualified. Like they gave it to an actual bigger investment institution. So we have to like manage it externally now. I do have a little bit of investment stuff, but it's very, very like, I want this long term as like a college fund for my daughter. And that's like literally the extent of what I'm worried about. Um, so it's not anything where I'm keeping daily or even like weekly track of. It's keep putting it into these things I know are pretty good, solid, strong long-term better investments than those savings accounts we talked about where I was even optimistic at 1.2%, right? That's still nowhere near what I know these things will make if I invest in safe, like long-term stock type things. So, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, maybe probably close to the last question, but um, if there's anything you could do to change our current like market system or even just like our, our whole capitalist system, would would you change anything, or would you leave it exactly the way it is right now? Uh, Double Tank, you go first. Yeah, I know this is hard. This is a tough question for for you guys to hear because I already know what your view is. But me, I would leave it. I don't know what what else it is. Maybe I'm institutionalized, but <laughs> well, you already said that. You you know you thought that there was like there's a there's a point to where you're making too much money so there's there's that yeah but what what are you gonna do about it like like we talked about earlier I mean if somebody's willing to pay you then you're gonna go especially if you're gonna be happier if you're gonna go on I mean again I just had a conversation with a, a good personal friend last night about uh, he's getting ready to take a new job and they're throwing everything at him they were talking about like taking his family to. Uh, Disney World on vacations, and I mean they're throwing him all all kinds of things. He's making me thirty thousand dollars more than he's making right now, basically doing the exact same thing. And it's like, yeah, why wouldn't you take it? And he's like, oh well, it's a it's a thirty minute drive right now, and his his work right now is a fifteen minute drive. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are you yeah? Are you freaking kidding me? I was like, dude, I I would I would definitely take fifteen twenty minute more drive. For thirty thousand dollars more, if it's going to make you happy, if it's going to be everything that you want it to be, um, if I mean, you're doing the type of coding that you want to do, that would be a bonus, right? Pete was saying he misses his commute. You want that fifteen minutes extra, so you can listen to podcast and audiobooks. That's right. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if I think the market works, I just think the economy works. I think that if you have people uh, banging down your door. And you're getting applicants all the time. Like right now, I'm I'm a hiring manager right now, and I have zero applicants. So you have to start upping how much you're willing to pay uh, people who are going to interview. And I just think that that's just kind of the way the market works. If I have a whole bunch of people that are applying for this job, I can start lowballing people and paying a little bit less because the labor market's high where people are trying to get a job. That's just the way things work. You're talking about, we're all talking about the labor markets right now. And I know for a fact across all markets, wages are going up. Everybody's paying more. I mean, even through uh, the, because I have two kids that are in the fast food market, or the entry level, uh, 19 and 17 year old, and they're making 12, 14 bucks an hour. But they were making like ten dollars an hour last year, and it's going up to eleven, twelve, fourteen, 
just because people are dying for freaking work. If they don't like where they're at, they just go somewhere else where they're willing to pay a little bit more. And since there's such a labor shortage, people are willing to pay more money. That's the dying for free market. Yeah, the value for workers. I didn't know what the the word would be, but it's the the it's working because there's a supply and demand. If you don't have enough labor, you're going to have to pay more to get that talent. And that's just how the free market works. That's that's the reason why I don't think I would do anything really different. Pete, what you got? If anything, I would, yeah, yeah, this is, this is, this is the, the greatest layup you could have given me tonight because I feel like <laughs> my, my answer is you take the tax code and you light that bitch on fire. You start completely anew with the way taxes are assessed and the way taxes are spent, right? You mandate a level of transparency in how taxes are spent by municipalities, by states, and by the federal government, mandated and you mandate a tax payment by individuals and corporations. Flatten it out, simplify it, but it needs to be completely restarted. I mean, the fact that we have people whose life's work is to find ways to help people to not pay their taxes is absurd, right? Like, and, and that is it, is, it is one of my largest problems with government broadly, but my answer is, Correct the tax treatment of everybody, man, woman, child, and corporation in this country. But the flip side also has to be true. You must, we must mandate that we know where those tax dollars go, where they're spent, how they're spent, and why. And that if we don't like it, we have the information and we can replace the people who make those decisions. So are you for a flat tax or for a progressive tax? I don't even know off off the top of my head which I would prefer, but I would like it to be uniform. Like actually, right? actually enforced. What, <laughs> you, well, like and whether you, whatever decision is made, if you make $7 million a year or if you make 70 grand a year, your level of personal hit should be commensurate with your income, right? You should be expected to be contributing to your where you live, right? And then you can start making that decision. Okay, what, what, what do I want? Do I want to support Alameda? Do I want to support San Antonio? Do I want to support Provo? I don't care where you live. Like if you you care where you live, and you should care where you live, and you should be confirmed and confident that your tax dollars are going to go to improving where you live. Otherwise, you should move. What if um... that's how slums happen? Yeah. Well, slums happen because of redlining. <laughs> well, I'm just, in general, you have certain areas of cities that don't get as much tax dollars because people don't make as much money. And then because they don't make as much money, that area is a whole heck of a lot worse off than other parts of the city that are getting and generating more tax dollars. So I guess that that, that would that that would be a hyper local spend of cash right so so let's say let's say you live in oakland which i've never lived in oakland i live near oakland chronos has lived near oakland okay so one of the the most interesting things to me is oakland's one of oakland's slums 
is part of Oakland that's closest to San Francisco. And intuitively, as somebody who's not from the area, I was like, well, why is that part of Oakland not really nice? Because your commute's shorter. It's actually closer to the bay in some respect. And I'm not talking about up on the hill. I know up on the hill is up on the hill. But like, you know, your Piedmonts and all that. But like, there are parts of Oakland that tactically should be nice because it's closer to the city where many, many people commute to. So I guess if you're saying, if you live in Oakland and you are paying taxes into Oakland, your taxes should be paid into Oakland, right? It shouldn't be paid into Piedmont or Rockridge or your neighborhood. I think your city, your county, whatever it may be, right? Like, obviously these questions, my my solution for this, my magic wand is, is in the other room, so I don't have it. But like my, my idea is, you know, pay into some sort of, of municipality, however big or small that is, county, city, whatever, right? But then that money can be distributed to try to avoid the slums, to try to say, okay, well, how do we redistribute? I live in the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago is fucked up, right? I live in a great part of the city of Chicago. The school that's across the street from me is fantastic. But if I went 10 minutes away, eh, 25 minutes away, schools aren't great. Why? Because they don't get support from their local community because people like me have to actually write them a check every year to keep my local school good. That shouldn't happen, right? We should know that my tax dollars, I should know how my tax dollars are spent. And if I'm not happy with it, I should be able to make sure I don't hire the same mayor, alderman, city councilman, whatever it may be next time. So I was going to, you say, talk about redoing the current concept of a tax code and adjusting the way income tax is managed. And I proposed on a different discussion because I kind of had a similar construct when I first started looking into political science and government structures and talking with people like this about it, right? That um, I had like a, so say I pay a certain amount and we fix that amount so that's there. And when I'm paying those, maybe I'm doing my, my forms. I could see all of the places I could send my money and I get to pick and choose like, hey, I want to pay this much to this and this to this and I don't want to pay for those. And if suddenly these programs stop being funded, right, then, hey, apparently that's not a program anybody wants because no one said I'm willing to put money into that. So it was kind of my original concept. But as I learned more and more about it and I think about what I said earlier, which is the rules we make and the, the conversations we have about like what rules we should have, and then how we tax things tells people what we place value on. So what we're talking about right now is taxing people's work. We're saying, you've done work, you've earned money, we're going to take some of that. And what we generally do with taxes is we say, that's a thing that, um, you, or you know, by forcing someone to pay for it, like fines or, or whatever, that says that's not a thing you're supposed to do. We're going to take some of that for doing it. So if instead we had... A, like, like a sales, sales tax or a consumption, consumption tax that was based upon the actual like value of the amount you spent. So the percentage would go up the higher the cost of the individual items because the concern, the key concern with that concept would be that uh, those who are extremely wealthy spend a far smaller percentage of their actual total wealth in any given year than anybody who has less wealth. They're not like, I'm going to spend a much higher percentage of my total value or total wealth than than anyone who's much more wealthy than I am. But the individual items they're purchasing are going to be of a much higher individual dollar value than the things I probably buy. So then those percentages could be higher so that total in all the tax should kind of bounce out. I mean, someone would obviously have to sit down and do a lot more math than I've done to figure out exactly what those dollar amounts would need to look and percentages would match. 
what do you guys think about not having an income tax and trying to make that same wealth back for the government in order to manage the programs they need through sales tax? There's states that already do that. So you have a whole bunch of states who uh, don't have income tax, but they tax the crap out of you out of other places. So no matter what, people are going to get them. Uh, the government's going to get their money. It's just depending on where do you want to get that money from people. So do you want to tax their land? Like when I lived in Georgia, I had a house in Georgia, and I had a $225,000 house, and I was paying $3,700 in uh, real estate tax for yeah, real estate tax. Right now, I have a six hundred thousand dollar house, and I pay like a thousand dollars in uh, real estate tax. So, I mean, wow, people are going to get their money the way that the way they're going to get their money. Yeah. It's just the way that you're going to be taxed as far as your your uh, real estate tax. I forget, I'm not using the right word. It's not real estate tax. What is this? Property tax. Property tax. Property tax. Yeah, so you're going to have property taxes, you're going to have uh, different uh, sales tax, you're going to have different taxes on different, different things, but no matter what, the government's going to get their money. Yeah, and I guess that's what I'm saying is like, if we can say, we can set a dollar amount, like, hey, this is the amount of money the government needs in order to keep functioning. And we have this list of ways we can get them. And we can choose those and we know we can figure out what those values need to be. Does it make sense to say, the choices we make incentivize people to do certain things. And if we're going to take taxes out of the work that you do, and we say that the amount of money you make each year determines how much you're able to do, especially since we know there's so many holes in that, like, oh, well, I'm going to have a $1 salary a year, but basically be able to say that's the amount of money I made in a year and pay no taxes, except that I obviously have all this other value that allows me to get away with really not having that. Then if we just don't worry about those, but look at the ways the other states are doing it. Like I'm from Washington state. We don't have an income tax. We have like a 8% sales tax and a much higher uh, property tax than a lot of places. But then people who buy houses are able to do so because they know the, the cost that they're going to be putting into it and are at a certain wealth category where they're fine. But then people who are working, even those $12 jobs that are entry level jobs, they're not getting taxed on that stuff. They can apply more of their wealth back into the market and then get taxed based on the choices they make and what they spend their money on. And I just think it's a, it's a, it's a more American value, right? So it says this is the things we hold important. We don't want to take your money away from you that you worked for and that you earned. We instead want to take money out of what you're spending your money on and make you like make smart choices on where you spend your money. That's kind of the way I thought of making that shift nationally instead of just at the state level. Yeah, I can, I can, I can understand that. Um, one thing real quick, uh, Devil Tank, you were talking about how you know the, the, the government's going to get their money you know, one way or the other. Generally speaking, that's true, but when it comes to like the really wealthy, it's like it's not true because of the. Have you, are you familiar with the buy, borrow, die, like scenario? I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so unless you're talking about like, uh, uh, not debt tax, but the um, like capital gains and the there's a couple other ones, but um, basically the 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 really wealthy they're hiding their wealth by. Um, getting favorable loans because they already have such a gigantic amount of wealth that they get a loan from a, from a bank, like a large loan and they get a really low interest rate and they use that loan to like buy all their stuff. So like when you get a loan, you, you all know, like you don't pay like taxes on a loan. So that's how they're, they're avoiding like the vast majority of all our taxes. So 
you know, when yeah. Elon Musk, you know, recently came on like some show and they were asking him like how much you pay in taxes and he said, I pay 58%. Technically, yeah, he probably does pay 58% on his salary at his job, but that's not where his money's coming from. Like the money that he's spending come from loans. And so that that's a serious issue yeah. and it's a serious loophole that I think really needs to be uh, one of the things yeah. that need to be like fixed. Personal credit lines and things like that where they can consistently draw down on a massive amount of cash that has been deployed to them on by, by, by a bank, whoever that bank may be, wherever that bank may be. So that's also important to think about, you know, where, where the domicile of that bank that's making that loan to them because that matters a lot too. Yeah, that's... Yeah, you can, Go ahead. And so you can also buy insurance products where you can take a loan against your insurance, your life insurance where you get the money and you spend it right now and then you're borrowing it from your uh, life insurance and then when you pass away your life insurance just pays that back yeah that's weird so you got a whole bunch of money and you it's not income because it's an insurance payout because you borrowed it from your insurance policy and then when you die the insurance policy pays it off yeah, I didn't even know that one. Hold on, let me write that down. <laughs> yeah. Need more insurance. Screw my kids. I mean, it costs an arm and a leg, but it's, it's a, way a way to avoid taxes. Yeah, that's that's part of like the the buy, borrow, die scenario. Like, it's I think it's incredibly egregious um, waste. Like these, they need to be able to pay in the things that that we all do. And I feel like when you get to a certain, you know, wealth category, that they they are not paying their fair share in taxes and they're also not paying in the social security. I don't know if you guys knew this, but they, they cap your social security over a certain, uh, uh, dollar amount. Like once you get 000. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty low relatively. Yeah. But that's, that's crazy. When we're talking about wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's because you can't take uh, social security past 121,000. So it's, it's so that people who are making so much money can't take from social security. Hmm. So the cap is not a bad thing. It's a, actually a good thing. So you think it's good because they can't take it out later? Well, I guess they wouldn't really. Well, they can only take out but so much. Yeah. Okay. Right. They can't. They can't take out a, a, a disproportionate amount. They can take out essentially what anyone else who's at the top of that tier is, whether you made one hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty-two million dollars. Your Social Security output once you get to that point is capped. Okay, I didn't know that they that they cap like what they're getting back, which I guess if you're really wealthy, it doesn't really matter anyway. But um, yeah, if, if they're capping like what you get back, then that makes that makes sense. So, all right, is there anything else you want to talk about? So I, I had a question. If we're ready to kind of go towards, you said maybe the last question. Yeah, I did have one. So it's going to potentially be a bit of a stretch for everybody who's not um, doing the thought stuff that I am. So especially when we talk about the labor shortfalls. And we still look at overall, like domestic GDP and the market, and what we say, like the ability. You talked about it when you first asked that very first question. This was the question that came to mind, and I figured I'd kind of hold it out for a little while. So if we talk about the strength of the economy, and you asked that. So if we compare that to where, if we entered into a conflict, because this is something that I think about, right? If we entered into a conflict that put us in a state of total war, things like World War II, we needed to actually completely activate the entire economy and activate the entire society to really fight that kind of a war for survival. If we're talking about we have labor shortfalls, we have different kinds of industry today than we did back then, does the dollar value that we have 
really represent the ability for the country to put that stuff into a fight? Or is it, we got to look at the industries, what industries could we convert over? What industries would be applicable to fighting a war? Do we still have that fighting power when compared to other major economies that are competing for total dollar value? And then when you really think production capabilities and what it is that they're doing with that economy when comparing those kinds of things. I know that's maybe not a question you might normally think about, but if you think about it for a second in that economy and the ability to produce and compare those two, how do you think we sit today? I would say very poorly. I mean, you're not going to get too many rosy derivatives out there if they're not even working. You know what I mean? And in, yeah, I, especially with the current um, kind of disarray and just like this mass partisanship, you know, of, of people, I, I don't think that people will be interested in helping um, a war economy at all. Not that we've ever left a war economy, we're still in a war economy, but I don't think people would be interested in you know, contributing more into a war economy in wartime the, beyond just paying taxes. So that's just my own personal view. So I, I am going to, to answer this lightly because I'm, I'm surrounded by folks who have been in the military and some who have been in combat situations. So I'm going to answer this casually. But I have a... a I have a, a view on this, and it's it's from a different sort of firsthand uh, crisis experience. So I I I was at 9/11 on 9/11. I was there, and I was able to see how the city of New York responded locally, and then feel how the country responded nationally post that crisis. Right, and it wasn't about production, but it was about culture, and it was about empathy and sympathy for your fellow Americans. So I have a maybe your sunny maybe sunnier disposition on the capacity of Americans to get their asses in gear in case of a crisis. So my 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 hesitation isn't about intent as much as it's about supplies. Right? So I, I think there would be people willing to put in the work Broadly, especially when we're starting to talk about, you know, the Rust Belt folks and, and people in, in the production heavy states or the food producing states or the, the actual people who are making tangible goods that can be consumed and put to work for fighting a conflict. My concern is if we needed to build tanks for, for, for devil tanks boys to run or jets or you know, uh, uh, any sort of, of uh, supporting materials that rely upon technology, my concern would be more about that supply chain and where we're getting it. So it really depends on who we're fighting this for against. Um, because if it's going the way you guys are, if I'm looking, if I'm looking west, it's going to be a problem. Um, versus the actual labor and, and heart and intent of, of people broadly, or of Americans broadly. But again, I yield to folks who have been war fighters because I have not. No, I think I think you make a really good point because the way I phrased it was very intentional, right? So the labor force, I think your point was, would come, right? If you suddenly said, hey, we need people to work these jobs, to build these things, to do this stuff, to support the war effort, people would do the work. Um, I do think culturally there's kind of a difference between that and the, hey, only eat two eggs and like one bowl of rice and give the rest to go fight. Like, I don't know if we're those people anymore, but... I do think the food production capability in the United States isn't one that I'm concerned with. I think 
we'll be able to make enough food for a war effort to support that. Uh, my concern was the piece I think you did hit on, which was was a very good analysis and, and you know observation. I'm, I still want to get Devil Tank to chime in too, but yeah, my concern was more like, where are these massive production factories that we could turn into something else? Like, where do we start building way more F-35s, right? Like, where do we turn to this company and say, hey, turn that off and let's start building this thing? Like, I, I don't know where those production facilities are. And I was wondering if y'all would have more insight on that potentially. Uh, if you look at uh, the way it was in World War II versus the way it was that it is now, we've become a more global economy. Back in the days, everything was built here. You had factories here. Now that we've become more of a global economy, I mean, look at all the supply chain problems that we're having across the world or across all industries right now. It's mostly because we're having supplies, supply issues with China. Like one of the things I kind of wanted to uh, hit on earlier is that have any of you guys been, have any of you, do you have any experience with China right now? Anybody? Because like right now I bought a 40 foot Connex box for some piece of land that I have out in Utah. And I mean, just three years ago, that uh, Connex box would have cost a thousand, two thousand dollars. So, so cheap. a forty yeah. foot. I'm sorry, what what is that? I don't know what that is. It, it's a, a shipping storage container. box, a shipping container, like a forty foot shipping container that I wanted to store some stuff in, and four wheelers and stuff like that. But it, it cost like a thousand dollars just three years ago. But because we're having such a shortage of everything, uh, I just bought that same exact shipping container for seven thousand dollars. And it just, it's ridiculous. Uh, I just bought a, uh, a second e-bike for my wife. I ordered it in March. It shipped to the shipping uh, dock on August 24th. Damn. And I just got an uh, email saying that it left China like four days ago. And it won't be here until November 16th. But it, it was at the shipping st- the dock to leave China on August 24th. Those are the type of problems that we're having yeah. right now with just global, yeah. that global okay. economy and why everything's taking forever to get done. Can we talk about that for a quick second though? Because anecdotally, I found, I read something recently that I found fascinating, yeah. right? So you guys may have heard about all these problems in the auto industry, right? Where chips are causing cars to be sitting 80% done, 85% done in factories all over United States, Japan, and Europe, right? All of these waiting for microchips to get finished, right? There's a couple of interesting data points I I, I heard there. You know what you didn't hear this problem? Korea. Why? Because they make their own chips and they're like, fuck you, we're not going to sell them. We need them. So we don't have have surplus. So Kia, Hyundai, A-OK, good to go, sending cars. You know, the other company who has pivoted, Tesla. You know why? Because Tesla said, okay, we have a problem. We cannot get the chips we need to build this car this way. Well, what chips can we get? Well, we can get these chips and these chips. Okay, rewrite the code to use the chips we can get, keep making cars. So it it was fascinating to me that that level of ingenuity and that level of, of uh, flexibility in your manufacturing process exists in some auto manufacturers, but not in others. And the vast majority are hamstrung by this right now. 
Yeah. But it just, to me, it shows that the power of that sort of ingenuity and well, honestly, scale being smaller too. Yeah, I mean, this this situation, especially with the, with the chips, I, I found it extremely fascinating because people weren't really being, our corporations were not being flexible enough to like think about alternative solutions. Yes, Tesla pivoted in a correct, you know, uh, direction. And I heard that some of the U.S. manufacturers were starting to either take out features of cars or basically um, dropping lower tiered cars from their lineup just to save on chips. But I'm like, listen, there's a whole bunch, there's plenty of chips in America. You, you're, you're not recycling and using them. Yeah. I, I have like five cell phones in my house that you know, <laughs> most of them are, like I, I use one, but like the other ones, I don't use at all. Like, I mean, obviously. Not one iPhone though. Them. Yeah, not one iPhone. Not, not, not a single iPhone. I'm not messing with that. I don't know why somebody, if you listen to this podcast, you can steal this idea. I don't know why we don't have like a, a recycling program for these cell phones. There's, you have on my cell phone, I have four cameras alone. No, not four. I have five or six on my phone alone. These are the same similar sorts of cameras that we use on cars. I have similar chips in this cell phone, multiple chips in this cell phone that can be reappropriated uh, for a vehicle. Point. But like nobody's doing it. Nobody's looking at actually recycling or upcycling old equipment to be used in these vehicles. They could do it. Like it's not impossible to do. But they're just going to be like, well, we're just going to sit in our hands and just like let this labor shortage kill us. But I'm just That's like, great there's, point. there's other solutions there, but they're just, they're not doing it. Yeah. I mean, so there would be one thing. So like we identify that that's potentially a shortfall for these production things in the support of that, that total war concept where we would probably have a ton of Americans sitting around on top of a bunch of things like, Hey, we need you to turn all that stuff in. We will, yeah. we will give you a voucher. You'll get some money later, turn in all your chips and we'll be able to produce these, these things. Cause even if you can't use the chip that's already built, it's still got the silicon and the, like the other stuff that you need to then maybe make a new chip. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah that's your fault. So talking shipping containers, I'm going to nerd flex for a second because Kronos is going to totally dig this. So I have this huge desktop game that I have uh, backed as a Kickstarter that I'm waiting for to get shipped. It's like this massive tower that like rotates and lights up in red and makes all noises and spits like stuff out while you're playing the tabletop game. It's going to be amazing. But, um, they're, they're literally, they've already done almost all their production. They had all their chips bought well ahead of time. Like they knew they had all this stuff set. They're already boxed and ready and sitting in a warehouse in China ready to ship. And it's all 100% like I need a shipping container and a ship that just doesn't exist right now. So as soon as we can get those, we'll be able to send them to the United States. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. I there, all, Go ahead. There, there's all these stories this week that I've read about companies like Costco and some other big companies going going rogue essentially saying like we can't deal with you people anymore so here's what we're going to do we're going to get more smaller shipping vessels to go pick stuff up from china and not go to the port of los angeles or long beach which i believe are the two largest ports in the hemisphere but i'm going to send these to the port of oakland or the port of portland because i know i can get it in yeah. Right. So smaller vessel can go to a smaller port and I can get my ship. And so people are hiring private shipping vessels that are smaller than the megas to get these problems solved on their own. And it, it's, it's crazy. And I think it's, it's unheard of in that world. It's so crazy that within a span of years, like Devil Tank was saying before, that the reason why the shipping containers are so cheap, because I was the Infinity Base was supposed to be a shipping container. Yeah. But no way. 
Yeah, it, re- it literally was. But I moved into a, a hilly area and like getting like on the backside of the, the infinity base, it's a it's a creek. So I can't pull anything from that way. And there's like a huge step up to like get into like my backyard. So I would have had to hire like a huge crane. And there was there's too many power lines like it was impossible. So that's why I built this. But back in the like years ago, there was literally too many shipping containers. That's why they were like a thousand dollars. But now, like literally like three, four years later, like they're using them all. And it's just like it's incredible that within a span of like a couple of years that you went from like a, a huge surplus to like they're almost giving them away to now they're worth, you know, seven times more than what they were worth. You know, you're like bourbon barrels. Like yeah. empty bourbon barrels are massively valuable now and they were literally making kindling out of them a decade ago. Yeah. Way to go beer market, you know? <laughs> yeah, because everybody wants to make IPA in them. <laughs> no, not stouts. Stouts. Yeah. It's all about the, the I got the bourbon barrel. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Stout. It is a stout. They have some, I think, bourbon barrel. I think I've had one before, but they're pretty rare. Bourbon barrel IPA? Yeah, yeah. They yeah, usually like pretty, it's, like it's pretty funky. Yeah. All right. Is that all we got? Anything else you guys want to get any save rounds? Uh, did did we get uh, double tank on the the abilities pivot? You did kind of think that, or you did mention something about industry being able to pivot to a total war in the United States right now. Yeah, I just think that uh, I don't think that we could just this, this exact same way. I think that there were just too much of a, a world economy that I think if we could, I think we could over time, but it all depends on like what we're willing to sacrifice. But as far as like building new factories that are going to be dedicated for uh, uh, building those those planes or those tanks or those guns or those bullets, I just don't think that we have the infrastructure here. I don't think that we have uh, what we need here. I think we're just too much outsourced to other places. So I guess then, like coalitions, like how are how close our relationships are with certain, especially economic partners, like to be able to support that would probably be a key part of that equation. Yeah, Canada like, and Mexico. Yeah, who yeah. <laughs> after? Well, we got. I mean, we got Japan, but I mean, they're they're not very big, so you know. When they're resource short too, being stuck on islands, it's the resource capability that they have is not the same as most of the. Other partners we have in our own geography too. So labor short too, right? Yeah. Well, they got an aging a whole. They yeah. have the the aging labor market, and other people are just not willing to to work it in it anymore. Like it, they're almost missing a whole generation of people. I don't know if y'all knew this, but like because they were so focused on working, people just kind of stopped having kids. So yeah. like there's a huge like drop off between like the elderly and the young people. It's like there's it's it's really uneven in Japan right now. You're gonna. You said something about like that about willingness to work. I was like, they need to be willing to reproduce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a it's been a great podcast. This is actually our season finale. Season finale. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you both for uh, for coming on. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us on. Yeah. Did you go that was that a blast. Far? Thank you guys. Absolutely yeah. did. Absolutely did. Papa Bear, you want to take us out of here? Uh, sure. All right. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, the first time we got a chance to talk, and I really appreciate uh, you contributing massively to this. Like I said, I was very much in learn mode this time. Um, so I've been explaining on Wisdom like what this podcast is about, and I think today was almost a perfect representation of it because um, Kronos knew you guys and brought you in, 
And a big part of um, what we do is we kind of try to sit it as a it's a it's a back and forth where one week we pick a subject that one of us feels pretty strong in and feels like we could kind of talk us through the discussion and the other one's mostly kind of learning and asking the questions, trying to drive the conversation through their need to learn. And I felt like that person this time, like I definitely was on the like, wow, I, I really, I'm like, there were literally moments where I was like, I don't even know what that word is. And I had to like think, <laughs> think through it and just listen to the context and like figure it out. And you know, we all saw it like once I was like, okay, I don't even know what that means. Can you explain that again? Cause it's just not making sense. And I feel like this does a lot for us as a, as a podcast for one. And it, and one of the things that I've mentioned, and it was the the wisdom conversation too, was like, it makes us understand and shows that like, in order to really get there, in order to have these conversations and like really explore what's going on, at least one of us needs to be vulnerable a little, right? I have to say like, look, I don't understand this. You're going to have to explain this to me. Show me what's going on with it. Help me be better. That then helps anybody who's listening, anybody who's watching, maybe be a little more willing to find somewhere where they want to get better and want to learn and be willing to be vulnerable. So Appreciate y'all helping me um, and and us on this show to make me look vulnerable. (laughs) Appreciate that. And uh, thank y'all for coming and joining us. And we look forward to talking to you next season, season three. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Have a good night. If you're interested in seeing the completely unfiltered pre-show and lots of other benefits, check us out on Patreon. I haven't had to show my vaccine card yet, but also I don't fucking go anywhere. So, you know, there's that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had to round that movie theater that one time, and they were strict about that shit. They were like mass on at pretty much all time. Look at this dude's underwater. As long as you're active, man, like however you can get it, you know, just get it. Because I've seen like so many people like get a little bit older and they just stop doing anything, and it's like do something. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I will admit it is getting harder and harder to uh, recover from some of the uh, these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I hurt, what, like was, I the, my what was, was the term we, we used, used the other day? Uh, Cronus, it's like, like uh, aging athletes, athletes, we said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was literally just going to do it right here, and they can hear this sound. It's gonna be terrible. Yeah, the other, <laughs> I can send you like a little soundboard where he makes it easier, where you can just plug it into the soundboard, like the you use like an RCA.